All right, so we are live business and buckets, probably be business episode eight or nine, right here in Las Vegas with the one and only sponsor of business and buckets, Fueled Supplements, Josh Morin. Uh, thanks for having me here in Vegas, man. Hey, Shane, thanks for coming down. I'm super excited. UFC 269 is this weekend. Dude, and... I'm more hyped about that than anything, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hyped to be here as well, my man. The podcast is cool, but you know, UFC 269, that'd be my very first uh, event, so. My first one was in Vegas at T-Mobile two summers ago. Yeah. Uh, the cool thing about my birthday weekend is it's always International Fight Week, which they usually have like multiple titles, two or three titles on a card. Right, right. And I got to see uh, Nunez versus Holly Holm. Okay. I got to see John Jones versus Tiago Santos, which at the time was insane. Right. And then Ben Askren got finished by Jorge Masvidal, oh, nice. like the yeah. fastest knockout in UFC history. So ben. if we can match that this weekend, anything like that, I'm going to be happy, my man. Man, I don't know if we're going to match that, but I mean, that's a tough card to follow up. But We got some bangers, man. There are some bangers. There's I mean, probably one of the deepest cards I've ever seen. Probably. If No, I would I would be absolutely solid on that if Masvidal was fighting Leon Scott, you know, Leon Edwards. Yeah, I'm a little bummed about that. Um, we get to see what Leon really is capable of, though, with the rematch in Kamaru, so... So he's gonna. Do you think that's next? It's, they already got it booked. Are you serious? Yep. So. Oh man, you, you're more in the know than I am. More in the know, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're way more in the know than I am. I'm business and buckets, baby. Come the, on. The, the, the fight, the fight down the make is Masvidal Covington. I think that's probably going to be the case. Um, I know that Covington. You know, he doesn't talk about it, but I think he has a six month suspension from that last fight. Just I believe. Yep. Because probably right. bruised shit, broke right. shit, but. Right. Um, that would be a that'd be a banger for sure. I heard they might potentially be doing the Ultimate Fighter. I hope so. That I would mean, be must-see TV. Yeah, I mean, I'll tune in for that for sure. Ultimate Fighter this past year was all right, but right. I don't think Ultimate Fighter has really been good since Rampage Jackson yeah. uh, and uh, Rashad Evans. That was the peak. Absolutely. Cool. Yes. Well, enough about UFC. Yep. Uh, we get to talk a little bit about your upbringing and entrepreneurship. You're also another, I guess, small town Montana. You know, anywhere else, Great Falls, small town. For me, that was you know kind of a city growing up. So. Uh, not as small town as Evan from the the other interview, but definitely small town Montana. So uh, we'll just start there, man. Talk to us about you know where you're from. Um, you know, do you have siblings? Your 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 upbringing, um, and I guess it's always been Great Falls, right? It's always been Great Falls. Yeah, born born and raised in Great Falls, and yeah, to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, I'm essentially a city boy from Montana. <laughs> if you were looking at the dynamics of Montana, the population differences in, in across the state, but if you're from Montana, you'd be like, oh, you're from the city, but you know, <laughs> 60,000 is is definitely far from being a city. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was cool. We had shopping, big shopping centers, and we didn't have to drive two hours to go get our clothes every school year and things like that. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Great Falls didn't have an Olive Garden, but, like, you know, the big cities had, you know, the OG Lounge, and you got the <laughs> Olive Garden, the fucking, uh, you know, Outback Steakhouse, and the things that you look forward to when you're in Montana that I haven't eaten since that I moved out of the state. <laughs> um, but yeah, Great Falls was Great Falls was was a good place to to grow up. My dad actually moved to Great Falls um, because he was in the uh, military, mm. so they have Malmstrom Air Force Base there. So he he's actually from originally from Massachusetts. So he came over in oh man, I'm gonna say he came over in '89 or '88 or '89, um, and moved to, moved to Great Falls. Was in the Air Force. And ended up meeting my mom. My uh, my mom got pregnant with my sister in in uh, ninety. She gave birth in ninety one to my sister. And then after that, it's kind of like set in stone. There, he wasn't going to go anywhere after that. So um, nineteen ninety three, I was born. So I'm twenty eight now. 
in 95, then my dad opened up his first location, uh, and it used to be called Total Nutrition and Fitness. Um, that's what it started in 1995. So what is that, 26? So how many years ago is that now? 20, 15, 26 20, years? Yep. About to be 27 years in business crazy. this June. Yeah, 27 years in business. So I uh, yeah, started as a Total Nutrition and Fitness, and they used to have they used to sell, uh, uh, you know, like the you know, uh, the, the baggy pants, what do you, what do you know what I'm saying? Like the, what, what, uh, what is that? Like the 90s, like yeah, the uh, 90s. balloon type pants yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the baggies, you yeah. know, like, you know, you look at the old, old Ronnie Coleman videos and things <laughs> that he's wearing, like the real flashy pants. I'm telling you what, those pants are coming back. I tell my dad, I'm like, yo, he, he had hundreds of pairs. He should have kept them and he could sell them over in some thrift shop in, in, <laughs> in Portland or, or Seattle for big money oh, nowadays. For sure, for sure. But, so you started at 95, and honestly, man, you know, I'm grateful to have been involved in, in such a entrepreneurship, business-minded type family. We were kind of talking about this before the podcast, and, and, you know, I've had good financial advisors. I've had good leadership in terms of saying, hey, like, this is the platform that we decided to go. My dad got out of the, got out of the military, but actually first started, before, if I just tra- backtrack just a little bit, is... Him, so my mom was a competitive bodybuilder in the 90s, like the top level competitor in the 90s. I'll have to show you some photos. It was absolutely ridiculous. Her physique was phenomenal. And like, I don't know if my dad will publicly say this or not, but <laughs> he, he says he says that she's maybe one of the most committed individuals in terms of the sport of bodybuilding that he's ever been around in his entire life. He said my, my mom was just like absolutely was like focused minded, dialed in, like she was she was lifting more than the guys at the gym, but just a freak in terms of just like work ethic and just wanting to be the best. And uh, so he actually had like a tiny little home gym on the base. And then how he first started selling supplements is he used to read the mags, like the Metrex magazines and the, the muscle the muscle X magazines. And so that's how he got introduced to supplements. So then like in those magazines, they used to have wholesale, like you could call the company and like pick up some products and that's how you'd order because that was like way before even like online was huge, right? And so he ended up like starting, starting a small little spot in his basement with products and supplements. And so he would be slinging supplements out of his house on the base and that's how it first started. And then they moved into uh, the base gym. He had like a little couple shelves at the base gym. And then in 1995, he actually got turned down by uh, three different banks. They didn't want to give him a loan for $10,000. He, he approached my step-grandpa at the time, uh, who owns one of, the, one of the largest at the time, well, the last 20 years, Montana Vending was a really large vending company. Obviously, vending machines since have really scaled back. Um, so he gave my dad a, a small loan, a $10,000 loan, and he told my dad that he had to diversify his income and diversify his platform to really like, to, to really give opportunity for other people besides if you're, besides clothing and supplements. So that's how tanning got involved. Mm-hmm. So my dad with that 10 grand bought two tanning beds. So they started in the Ever, Evergreen Mall in Great Falls, Montana with two tanning beds. And uh, the rest is history. After that, they were there, I don't know how many years, I think uh, five or six years. They ended up upscaling, moving into two different facilities um, and had two shops. And I believe it was like six or seven years ago, he's combined just into one shop now and they changed the name to Total Nutrition and Tanning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been around for 26 years. So growing up in Montana, um, it was really cool to be able to see something flourish from the ground up. 
and seeing something that was really untraditional. So from like the get-go, I always felt like as a kid that I was going to own my own business, you know, something. But I was never going to go into the family business. That's why I was thought in my head. Like, I don't want to do this, but I want to do this, but I don't want to do this specifically. And so, um, you know, it's something I really didn't have a whole lot of interest in when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, growing up. You didn't want supplements as a kid, dude? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. You didn't want to attend? Oh, man. <laughs> I, all I can say is, is if anybody, whenever I hear somebody, I and mean, it's kind of like back in my day, yeah. you know, that whole thing, we walked up the hill, we walked up to school going up the hill both ways. You know, but back in my day when I was a kid, <laughs> Oh man, I tell you what, the supplement industry, products, formulations, and specifically flavorings since the fucking 90s and early 2000s, I mean, it's not even close. <laughs> I mean, I remember being a kid, man, and my dad forcing me to drink these protein shakes. No, they were actual protein shakes, you know? Talk. So, yeah. <laughs> oh man, they were, so, they were so bad. He used to give me this cookies and cream one, and he'd make me shake every morning. And every and I would I would be it'd be the last thing I'd eat my eggs and I'd eat my yogurt and I'd eat my fruit and I'd wait for him because he had a shower every day at the same time so I'd wait for him to go to the shower and I'd go fucking pour that thing right down the drain baby <laughs> I probably poured down hundreds of dollars oh, worth of man. worth of worth and he I think he knew but you know what is he gonna keep what is he gonna sit there and watch me mm -hmm. you know so yeah they've definitely come a long ways from when I was a kid and and you know besides like protein I really didn't use a lot of supplements and products. I barely was even get allowed to drink caffeine, um, so like I you didn't need any. Yeah, yeah, I really, I really <laughs> you did. Some caffeine. Yeah, oh shit. <laughs> yeah, I really didn't need any. So, um, but yeah, man, it, it was it was it was cool seeing seeing it and being involved with it. I remember we I'd go clean the tanning beds when I was a little boy, and and uh, it was a cool culture to be around, and it really showed me what it was, what was required to be a business owner, because my dad is is one of the most meticulous man out there he's got a system and a method and that's what success requires is a system and a method that you repeat over and over and over and over again it's just like when i was a kid growing up wrestling i always tell people this all the time is business is the same as when you're a high level athlete in a sport i've probably hit i mean hundreds of thousands if not millions of takedowns and i i haven't wrestled for a year and i know that i could go hit a takedown i mean i'd go run through my entire offense Pretty, I mean, obviously there's gonna be some glitches. I've been a little rusty, <laughs> but I can tell you what: I can hit a double leg without looking, you know, and hit a single leg and, and get into this position without looking. The same is with business: it's time and repetition. You have a system and a method, and you develop that skill set over and over and over again. And that's why I really was introduced too young as a kid was a system and a method. My house was always spotless clean. Like I remember being, I remember like having kids over, like to our house, bro. We'd be eating, and then after we would eat, my dad has a mini vacuum, and I'd have to go vacuum under the fucking <laughs> under the seats, dude. My friends would be like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "Yeah, so my dad makes me do this." You know, <laughs> like, it was ridiculous. You know what I'm saying? But it wasn't really ridiculous because I now understand now owning my own things, living in my own facility. Like, how, like the way that you do one thing is the way that you're gonna do most things. And that was something that my dad, you know, I don't know. I always ask him, I said, you know, where did that come from? Did it come from the military? You know, did it come from English? It's probably a mixture of all of that. It came probably from the military. And then my grandma is really a lot like that as well. But, um, but yeah, so just being, you know, just being a kid and, and seeing the, the culture and the growth of a, of, a, of a business that, 
you know, small business, that was, I mean, I, small business is the backbone of America, and they're trying to eradicate small business right now through inflation and through the, the political structure of what's going on and the climate of the climate of the of the world and the economy. They're really trying to eliminate small business. Corporation is really taking over. So I really got to see what was required when small business was really flourishing and now seeing that transition into, you know, the late teen, like, you know, 2019s and in the 20s as this new wave is happening and just kind of seeing first and foremost the different landscape of what is happening in Montana versus what's happening on really the mic the, the macro you know you kind of have the, the micro and then the macro you have Montana what works in Montana <laughs> and then you have what doesn't work everywhere else but you so you have to adapt change and overcome man so yeah I mean you know I had a sister growing had a sister growing up her and I were you know, heavily involved in sports. You know, I never had a big brother, so she was my big brother. <laughs> and my sister, I don't say this very, you know, much in, in public, but, you know, I tell you what, my sister grew fast, okay? So, I mean, girls kind of grow fast. And I wasn't... We're just a little punk-ass kid. I kind of was a little pipsqueak, dude. I was a little, I was a little pipsqueak, and she's two years older than me, and, uh, you know, everybody thinks that I had, like, I, I was the one that was the feisty one, you know, because I'm the fighter and the wrestler. But... No, my sis, my sister, was the meanest little girl. Like I don't know what she had, what type of anger she had built up from her past, or because it was because I was born, or or what. You know, there's a new king on the block, and I got <laughs> born, or what the fuck it was. But um, she literally beat my ass for years and years and years and years and years. And um, you know, we had a good, we had a decent relationship. Obviously, I think every sibling relationship. Um, Hi, you know, it can go two ways. You have siblings? Nope, only yeah. child. Man. Yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny dynamic. I think it's funny because I think you go your whole life kind of hating each other, and then you grow up, and then you're they're your best friend. I'd have to say my sister is like hands down my best friend now. So, but I went like my whole life. I didn't like hate her, but like I just you kind of have that grit in your teeth, like yeah. that, fuck you, you know, in your breath. <laughs> you know, any time that you could do something to her, you would. You know, so. I think as we got older and she moved out of the house, her and I really began to develop a great friendship. So it's it's funny how all that works, man. So so yeah, man. Great Falls, born and raised, and um, you know, it, Great Falls is is I, I, one thing that I can say is like I was telling you earlier is that um, I knew that I never I knew that I wasn't going to stay there, but I knew that Montana was a a very. Uh, it held a special place in my heart, always, and I always will. And I made, and the commitment is to be back there one day. But I knew that that wasn't like it for me, my journey for me. I fit in because I, I mean, I, I fit in because I was a fairly likable kid, and you know, I was a nice a nice kid, whatever the situation was. But I knew that there were some parts of me that really didn't fit in that I wanted to see more of what was offered here. Do you think that all came internally or did you have influence from your sister or parents to want to seek something else? The biggest, I think the biggest thing for me was when I was a young boy, I just wanted to be successful. And so success to me was knowing, to me at that time was money. And I had like this painted picture in my head about like what success meant. But I, I didn't, like, when I had that vision in my head, the vision wasn't Montana. It was always Miami, Florida, or California. That was my vision. I always thought that I was going to go to Miami, 
live in a glass penthouse and I was going to be whatever I was going to be. So I wanted to be a surgeon forever. That's what I actually, growing up, I, I and actually initially went to college was to become a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon. That's what I always thought I wanted to do was be a surgeon. And I, I really only wanted, I, I was smart. I understood anatomy very well. I'm good with, I'm good with my hands. And I mean, I've, I'm very well versed in, in the body systems and in human biology. And I think that's what really excited me because I was something that I actually like looked forward to in school. So I fucking hated school, but I loved my human biology classes, my anatomy classes. Like that's something I look forward to. Everything else I could have gone without. So that was like, well, shit, if I'm supposed to pick something, well, I better pick something that's gonna make me a bunch of money. That's how I thought in my mind at the time. So I think that that was the biggest, the biggest reason was just really saying, hey, like, it's the money and the lifestyle that I envisioned for myself. And like, I don't know, I, I think that that's something from a young childhood that was promoted through my family. It wasn't saying like, hey, go on and go do this. They weren't saying like, you need to go do this. But I, I would always remember, regardless of the, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in a perfect home, and, and none of us have, and we all have had our, our uh, moments, and I've definitely had my moments with both my parents, is the one thing I can say, though, is, and attest to, is that both my parents, I guess there was some, their motto would always just be dream big. And I, that's what, as a child, that was instilled in me in saying, hey, like, to help build that esteem that I had as a kid, is saying, I can do anything. And I truly believed that as a child. As like, oh, I can I can go do anything. I, mean, I wanted to be fucking president of the United States in like second grade. That's what I wrote down, you know? I'm like, I'm so glad that I'm not, so glad I never went down that route. But yeah, I think it was I think it was really really having my parents instill the value in me to say there's no limit. There's no limit to what you can do. And so I can attest a lot of that to them saying, "Hey, like like thank you, thank you for really allowing me to to ha instill that belief. Because when you're a child, you're like a you're like an unprogrammed computer, and your surroundings, your environment, what you're taking in is all going to be, it's 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 all going to play a major factor in the keyboard in the in the infrastructure of the of the in the keyboard that's running your brain and your body. And so if you're being told that you can do anything as a child, and you're saying, hey, you can if you believe in yourself, do anything. You know, ultimately one day, most likely, you're going to say, oh shit, I can do most things. And then you start to realize like, uh, except for, I'm probably not going to go play in the NBA. You know, I'm probably <laughs> not going to go fucking, you know. I was, uh, it was either President of the United States, go play in the NFL, or be a doctor. I'm like, damn, those are three big ones. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's big dreaming. <laughs> big, yeah. big dreaming there. I'm so glad I'm none of those things. And obviously, I think... Uh, Genetics plays a role in why I'm not a professional football <laughs> player um, or basketball player. And uh, but yeah, man, I think that that's a big, I think I'd have to attest to them, you know, that that's a big reason why that uh, I am what I am. How about sports? Is that something that you guys are just, you know, this is always interesting to me because I was very involved in sports, but I was basically raised by a bunch of women that hated sports. So that was I always, interesting dynamic. I, I, I bring this story up. You've probably, you know, there's lots of different versions of it. I brought it up with the Evan podcast and I've brought it up multiple times, but uh, there's the tell of two sons. You have an alcoholic father. Right. You interview one of the sons. Like, why are you an alcoholic? He's like, well, my fucking dad's an alcoholic. Like, what do you expect from me? That's all I knew growing up. Right. Interview the other kid. He's a very successful entrepreneur. And they're like, well, your brother's an alcoholic. Your dad's an alcoholic. What happened with you? He's like, well, I just saw that growing up and I wanted to do something completely different. I always was just had this mentality of, there's other things out there. I have no idea where it came from. I want to do these things. And sports was something that 
you know, I think I just wanted a very extroverted kid. I wanted to be out and about and around other people. Right. I liked the team sport. I was away from home. I never liked being at home. So that's what got me into it. So for you, was it like your parents like, hey, we need you to do these things. These teach you good lessons. Were you just like, oh, holy fuck, this is awesome. I want to be involved in it. So talk to me a little bit about that because I know sports was a, a big upbringing for you at least. I was absolutely forced. I hated it. I hated wrestling. Absolutely hated it to this day. I mean, I was good at it. No, I don't hate it to this day. I hate it when I was a kid to this day. You miss day. it now, huh? Yeah, I do miss <laughs> it. I, I didn't really love and I'll, I'll kind of go the chrono, uh, chronological order of it all, but I didn't really love wrestling until I was 18 years old. But I absolutely hated the sport of wrestling. I was good at it. And I think, I think the reason why I didn't like the sport of wrestling is the dynamic relationship that I had with my father. And I've spoken about this publicly, so there's nothing, there's no... My dad knows what he, what he knows and what's happened. And so the, the situation was what the situation was. And, you know, my father, I feel, was just doing his best. My father never really had a father that was around for him. And so he was only doing what he knew how to do. And instead of being unpresent, he was the complete polar opposite of being unpresent and being there too much if you could kind of put all of that together. And so... Uh, the sport of wrestling was something that I really didn't enjoy doing. I didn't like doing, and it caused a lot of stress in my life when I was a young boy, and a lot of force to some to something. And so when I had a, an escape to go play football, I fucking love playing football. Really, I loved. I didn't it. even know you played football. To yeah, be honest. yeah. <laughs> and I, I was a really good little football player, fifth and sixth grade, and I played fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. So I played for four years tackle. That's and before you get to high school, and yeah, it was weird, man, because the wrestling, I did not like how my dad approached his relationship with me with wrestling. I will never approach my son with that same relationship with wrestling and because he'll absolutely fucking hate me or, and hate the sport of wrestling like I had with my father for quite some time. Um, but it was weird because for football, my dad was our football coach as well, and I absolutely loved that. And I think it was because I didn't have the same association with the individualness of wrestling and the toughness of fucking wrestling and like what the practice does every, you know, it has, requires every day of wrestling. I mean, I remember, I mean, every day, I mean, we're talking for five or six years, my dad after practice, I would get an earful and I'd, and I'd cry every single day on my way home. So could you imagine a kid that's crying on their way home every day, not really looking forward to going to that practice that day? I'd cry, I'd cry on my way home every single day. He'd pull in this park, he'd pull in this little parking lot about a mile from our house. He'd finish the conversation, and then to make it up for me, he would say, hop up here, and I'd hop on his lap, and he would let me steer the truck on the <laughs> way home. That was his way to make up, up for it. And so that happened for a lot of years. And you know, I, I'm grateful that I had a present father, I know my dad, ha we've made amends in our life about some of the things that have happened, and he knows that he didn't do it all right, and it is what it is, man. Um, but yeah, in terms of, of the wrestling, I didn't like re I didn't really like wrestling. Um, I loved football when he coached us during football. I don't know, it was just a different dynamic, man. We lost one game in two years in our tackle football, so it, it, I don't know, it was, just, it, was, it was different because I was having the same success in football that I, and if you were to kind of correlate it to wrestling, I mean, fuck, I would score four or five touchdowns a game every game in football, having fun, I mean, crushing people. I mean, in fifth and sixth grade, not there wasn't a whole lot of, we were all kind of the same size. Yep. You have some outliers, 
And so think of, like, and I'm, I'm super, super athletic and explosive as a young as a young kid. So it's probably one of the hardest hitters in fifth and sixth grade tackling because nobody had hit puberty yet. Yep. And I've been hitting blast doubles leg for, for fucking <laughs> yeah. you know ten years now already. Yeah. You know six years. And so I literally would just go blast double, just crush, crushing dudes. And and it was great because it was like my dad would just get so fucking hyped, dude. He would, I just remember the parents would complain to the boys and girls club. We'd be the team up by five touchdowns, and he'd fucking run another play. <laughs> like and that was just, but but it was cool because like it was it was a different type of of camaraderie that we had within our team. We had a like we were the we were like the bad news bears. Our team was we we were an accumulation of like. Uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base kids came and played, and there was like two other schools that came and played. Most of all the other teams were like mainly like their school. Like they had enough kids like in their area that they didn't have to have other other kids come play. We were kind of like an accumulation of a few different schools that would come play. And so like we were kind of the bad news bears team, man. Like some of our it used to be like what like these we weren't from the rich they weren't we weren't rich kids, like we weren't at all. And then there was a rich, there was a rich team. Like the rich team was supposed to be the fucking team that like won it all because in the years past, their brothers and whatever else that had been coached, you know, you got your teams in your yeah, area and yeah. things. And so like, I think the difference maker was, is, is that I can tell you this is the intensity that my dad brought to our practices in fifth and sixth grade is what you would see at a high level high school. He just brought the same intensity that we were training at in the wrestling room on a football. And imagine introducing kids in fifth and sixth grade who've never been introduced to it before. We had kids going from being scared of their fucking shadow, dude. <laughs> to by the end of the year, I remember, I, dude, I remember this kid Cameron on our team. He was a, one of the biggest kids on our team, bro. Like fifth grade, like five foot ten, big kid. He was so scared of his shadow to like block somebody in the beginning, dude. By the end of the year, he's fucking pancaking dudes, bro. We, we're doing we're doing the ring of fire drill in fifth and sixth grade. Getting, Best drill ever, yeah. yeah, getting in fights and stuff at, at practice in fifth and sixth grade. So I don't know why it was just a different dynamic than the wrestling for me. And I was like, almost like the, that time I looked forward to because it was an escape from practice from wrestling, and. I absolutely love playing football. I, I, I love playing football. I loved having my dad coach football. We lost one game in two years. We lost by one point. And then I remember it was like, it was, it was so awesome. It was, a, it was a championship game. We're down by two points and there's like fucking 17 seconds left. And I ran, they're, they're, only, they're only 80 yard fields. So it's like 60 in completion. I ran like a 50 yard touchdown to win the game. And I, and I literally remember to this day, ran, like physically ran over, like cleats on their stomach, this kid that I know, like ran, on, <laughs> ran him over, like actually, on the way to a touchdown. I remember him, because it was him, my uncle coached, we had another family friend that was from the base, and we just had a bunch of misfits. We had an ex, ex, ex uh, Great Falls High wrestler, uh, Jeremy Noble, he was our special teams guy, super high fucking energy. It was just fun, man. We were crushing skulls and, and you know, cashing in touchdowns, and it was fun. And then, and then it was like, fuck, now wrestling season starts because that's only six weeks. You probably liked the team aspect versus the individual, I'm assuming. Yeah, the team aspect was, it was a lot more relieving in terms of, of pressure. And, but even then, like, I still, that was another thing is like, I still was expected to get every, t every tackle. Like I couldn't even count how many, ta I mean, I probably got 90% of the tackles. I mean, I was, that was still the expectation. 
and which was fine with me because I was okay with that expectation. And, and my dad had enough know-how and, and knowledge within the sport of football in the fifth and sixth grade level to really have us operating in well-oiled machines in a very simplistic manner to, for me to be able to utilize my abilities and skills because I could see the field very well. I had really good vision for as a young kid. I think a lot of that came from my natural ability, but a lot of years of wrestling, I've always had like really good vision. Yep. You know, seeing things before it plays out and then being able to play specifically to that pressure. And I think wrestling teaches that more than anything because wrestling is like a, a chess match, you know? It's like a give and take. It's like, hey, this guy's gonna do this, but then how, what's your counter to this? Mm-hmm. And football and sports is all like that, but I was introduced for you know, since I was five years old, in fifth grade, you gotta be like 10 in fifth grade, you know, is for five years introduced to a high level sport where my, my ability to really begin to articulate pressure, angles, adjustments, like that's something I started to understand as at fucking, you know, seven years old. And so wrestling was awesome because I gotta be, you know, around my buddies and meet a lot of cool people. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't really something I looked forward to. Did you do high school football? Never did. Yeah, no. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I actually had a – seventh and eighth grade were really tough years for football. My dad wasn't coaching anymore. Um, we went to the middle school. The middle school coaches were idiots. Um, I'm, I'm, I remember to this day my dad just having freak shows on the sidelines because – how like first off this was when everybody started to have puberty hit puberty and i really wasn't that big but i still was more athletic and had more ability than most of the kids i was probably one of the you know top five fastest guys in the grade and my my ability to see things was uh, still high but how they ran on offense and defense they almost like took me out of the place not like specifically but how they would hand me the ball like having me run up the fucking middle every time I'm a I'm a hundred hundred pounds. We got guys that are hitting puberty now. You know, instead of hey, we need to get this guy to the outside. Every single time I got to the ball to the outside, I mean I'd have 10, 15 yard gain, 10, 15 yard gain. And then they had me playing middle linebacker at a hundred pounds soaking wet in middle school. And they every and they would have me blitzing and things. My dad's like, dude, you need to put him you because I was outside linebacker in fifth and sixth grade, but I was the perfect size for that. He's like, dude, you need to put him in like a safety position. Let him read the field more. Cause he's going to attack, is he going to attack it? But so fifth, so seventh and eighth really put a burden on like football. I, I didn't, it was fun. I looked forward to it, but it sucked because I was getting beat up to be honest with you. They were, they were just beating the shit out of me. Like I would have all like 90% of the carries. And actually what happened in eighth grade was, is I, I uh, injured my knee and I, I mean, and I, and so I was beat up all season long. I injured my knee in eighth grade and it started causing me some major problems um, towards the end of eighth grade. And so I went over a year with a knee really messed up, never got it looked at. And then uh, freshman year uh, at Great Falls High, I ended up getting an MRI done on my knee and um, I actually drove down to Butte, Montana for it. And I had a thing called osteochondritis desiccans. Essentially what happens is, is is the, the bone the bone gets hit and then the bone dies. So it stops producing blood flow to the bone and sending nutrients to that part of the bone. So the bone dies and then you and then but at the time they thought that um, it there was about it was about a quarter size is that if it completely had flaked off and my knee was for a whole year wrestling, my knee would 
would lock up. And I literally would have to have somebody manually go like this and like, like, like a transmission. Like that's how bad it was. Like you look at like old wrestling footage from eighth grade. I'd be in the middle of a match and my knee would lock up and I'd hit that, oh, 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 oh. And then they'd have to come out and like manually like throw that thing in like a bad transmission. <laughs> that's crazy. For a year, dude. And I'm like, yo, dude, my knee is fucked up, man. Like this shit's messed up, you know? Like, like oh, it's your IT band, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, so, they, so they went in there and, um, and I went to a, a guy in, in Butte he looked at my he looked at my MRI, and he told me straight up. He goes, "This is a serious situation. You're gonna be lucky if you wrestle again." Dude, I haven't started high school yet. No. I'm sitting here like, man, I came out of that. And he he was the ex uh, Pittsburgh Steelers ortho. The Steelers, baby. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> my God, fuck this guy. Yeah, I remember this. I, I probably can remember his name, but yeah, I said, "Fuck this guy." You know, I I cried on my way home. And I, I remember my dad telling me that that wasn't, he goes, this isn't it. Don't believe this guy. This isn't going to be the end of your life. We're going to figure this out. So we, we, cause we just wanted a second opinion. So we come back home. We get the, we ended up going in for the surgery. And because sometimes what happens is, is when that bone flakes off so much, you have to get a cadaver put in. So like even like, it's like almost like a knee replacement, almost similar. You have to get a piece of bone or cadaver, like, put into that position and like reattached. I mean, I'm so young, you know, I was only 15 years old at the time, you know, so having, you know, something like that is kind of serious. And so in terms of like weight bearing, you know, in terms of progression for the rest of my life, I'm still growing, all sorts of different things. So thankfully when they went in, that piece, that piece of bone hadn't detached fully. It was still intact. It was dead. I had OCD in the area, but it hadn't detached, but I had a, uh, torn, completely torn lateral meniscus. So for a year, I was wrestling on torn lateral meniscus and an OCD in my knee for a whole year. And so they went in there. They uh, they did a they did a repair. So they essentially suture in young people. They especially when it comes to the lateral side of the meniscus, they do a suture. So they they it's like it's like they pin. They use little pins to like tack it down. And then they took two two screws to secure to, to secure the piece of bone, and they drilled up into my red bone marrow. And what happens is is that that blood flow now then supplies that area, and then it reforms the uh, femoral femoral headspace that got injured. And so uh, they were like looking and saying, "Hey, like this is a six to seven month situation." I was on crutches for twelve to sixteen weeks, non weight bearing. Couldn't even put any weight on it, Damn. because not because of the meniscus, but because of 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 the OCD. If you put weight on it, then the process has to start all over again. And so, like that was a really tough time being a freshman in high school, coming out of you know middle school, and I wanted to be a four-time state champion wrestler. I'd already known at that point in my life that college aspirations to play football were pretty much none, unless for some godforsaken genetical thing that I was going to have a huge growth spurt um, in high school that I'm looking at my body, my size. Yeah, I had the ability to play high school football. Probably would have been a great corner or safety, but I was looking long-term, you yeah. know? And so that's when I decided to go full on with wrestling, stop playing football. And so that year, it was my freshman year. And yeah, that was a fucking tough year, man. Uh, let's just say we absolutely rushed it. And we pushed it too hard. 
We wanted me to come back and wrestle, which was the dumbest decision that I had made early in my life based off of the fact that I had these big goals of, of having to be wrapped up and being a four-time state champion. It was a six-month deal that we kind of made into like a two-and-a-half or three-month situation. I could barely even do a knee over toe, and I'm going to practice and wrestling. Um, tough year for me, and uh, it was actually crazy. So I'm, I'm wrestling. I can't even take a shot on this knee, and they're having me back in the, in the lineup wrestling. Two weeks before um, state, or sorry, two weeks before divisionals, we go to Missoula and duel the Missoula teams. At the time, I was pretty banged up still. They told, the coaching told my dad that I wasn't going to wrestle, but I just needed to come. I needed to make weight just to make it my weight down and just be part of the team. It was good for me. So I said, he said, okay. So he went, ended up wrestling all the matches. There's three duels. So I ended up wrestling two of the first matches, and I looked great, honestly. Went out there, beat some ass. Um, looked great, felt good. My dad's like, what the hell? You know, I'm like, and, you know, one of the only times that my dad's not seen me wrestle when he could have. And uh, yeah, last match of the day, I wasn't even supposed to wrestle the match. They bumped me up to 119, so I was a 112 pounder to get the win. And uh, I got out, first period, two takedowns, took him down, let him go, took him down, rolled him off of the period, four to one first period, pretty solid, feeling good. He ended, uh, he ended up choosing top second period, uh, kid from uh, Missoula Big Sky, and he went in, tried to hit it, they, they call it a, a, a Merkel, or they do like it's called an assassin or a Merkel, and he, he, he kind of kind of like bulldog over, over the front corner of the neck here, and you kind of put one leg in and you kind of pull him over. Well, I, I had posted my arm out, and when he, when he went like this, he was prying over my arm, and my whole elbow buckled in, shot in, fucking the dislocation right on the match, just shot completely in. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so this all happened all in one year, you know? So I just got done surgery. This is all going on. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, dude, this happens. And I, I'm screaming, I'm screaming on the mat, I'm screaming on the mat. Thankfully, at the time, one of the assistant coaches was the head orthopedic surgeon in Missoula, or one of them. So he was one of their assistant coaches coaching the match against me. And so I'm, my coach thought I was, I was like tapping out, crying. He thought it was because he was choking me out. I'm like, dude, please have more faith in me than that. I never crying or choking out. I'll go out asleep before I start crying or tapping out. Bro. <laughs> and my arms, I come up, my, I, I looked at my arm, I'm like, dude, it's broken. I'm like, yo, it's broken, it's broken. But I completely had shot this in and this was completely shot out. I mean, it was like backwards. So I remember, uh, this is probably one of the worst pains that I've felt, one of them, but I ended up going into the training facility or into the trainer's office and the orthopedic surgeon went in there and they tried setting my elbow back in place while I was awake with all the adrenaline, the tension and everything that was in my body. Good luck. I mean, I remember them trying to pry that thing and I'm sitting there, end up going to the hospital that same doctor went to the hospital, they put me to sleep, and then he put my arm back in at the hospitals. And so that ended my freshman year. I went eight and one on the year, something like that. And um, so that completely ended my freshman year of wrestling. After that, after that season was done, I had, so I had to heal my arm up that season. Summer, summer comes around, I ended up having to get a second surgery that same year on my knee for, I retore 
all of those pins out of my knee. So when they went in there and they, they did the suturing, yeah, I, I had, like, you could feel my knee at the time, the pins. Like, they were, like, floating, like, on the outside. It was weird. So I, I literally retore my meniscus. They went in and had to remove those, and then they had to shave down and cut down my, my, my lateral meniscus. So that all happened my freshman year in high school. So that was the start of my high school career right there. I mean, that, and then after, after that, like, there was an absolute no way that I was going to play football 100% after all that. Now, did you get to be healthy the rest of your high school year for wrestling? Did you win three times, two times, one time? So that next, that next season, the, so my sophomore year, uh, I won state. So I was a state champ my sophomore year. My junior year, I lost in the finals. And then I remember losing the finals. Um, Who did you lose to? Tanner Sprinkle. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he was, a four-time, he was a four-time state champ. I lost in my hometown. That was a crazy thing. I'm gonna try to make. I'll make this story this because this was just kind of funny. The yeah. story is funny. So, oh, and the man. reason I'm bringing up wrestling a lot because it's a lot of your background, right. and I think we'll talk about all those learning lessons to where you are today. Cool. People are probably like, "What the fuck is talking?" Yeah. <laughs> so, man, oh man. Long story short, for I love you know your sophomore in high school. You, you get, I wasn't my first love, but it was, I lost my virginity to this girl, okay? So we had a big falling out. I said some things. She said some things. This is my sophomore year in high school. First match of my junior year, I don't know who she talked to or I don't know even why they cared. They found out that I lost to Tanner Sprinkle the first, first tournament of the year. So I started getting... Unsolicited, like block numbers texting me, harassing me about losing, and calling me about losing, and like saying Tanner sprinkled this and Tanner sprinkled that. <laughs> I'm in fucking high school, dude, and like, I mean, this is hours after the match, and I'm like, dude, get a grip, like, okay. Well, it was kind of the, just to backtrack a little bit more. Heading into high school, the that freshman year, I think this was something that's super wild. Is the Billings Gazette had a forum, a wrestling forum, that you could anonymously go on there and type whatever you wanted about whoever you wanted. And the two top dudes that people talk shit about were me and Val Rouser. And how, how Sprinkle's gonna beat my ass, how Brennan Barter's gonna beat our ass, how all these people, and we're over, we're over fucking, we're not that tough. This is after Val just won the toughest tournament in the country. I had beaten Val the same year, you know, like, okay, like all this stuff's going down. I mean, we had, there was, I mean, there was damn, my dad was ready to fight people over some of the things that they were saying about freshmen in high school on this Billings Gazette forum, Billings Gazette forum that they had. You could anonymous, my dad was freaking out at the time, dude. My dad was like, how about you tell, oh, you're so anonymously tough talking about 15 year old kids. Yeah. You know? Imagine what the shit goes down now. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I can't even imagine, man, but just like. It's like, come on, dude, like all these parents. And so, so building it up into high school, there was a lot of stuff going on and it was what it was, but it just put a lot of pressure on us. And it was just, it wasn't required, but so heading into my junior year, you know, there's always talk going on, always talk and this and that. And so, uh, I lose to, I lose to Tanner first match of the season and I started getting all these texts. And, and all this stuff's going on. Well, 
I ended up going to CMR's uh, MORP is when the girls asked the guys. So I went to Great Falls High. So our rival schools across the across the river is called CMR. So my sister went. I was on a permissive transfer to go to Great Falls High, essentially to wrestle. And so I knew a lot of people. I went to middle school on the side that went to CMR. So I knew all the people. And so I got invited by a girl from CMR to their MORP. And I ended up going. And it was weird because I, I ended up making amends with this girl and saying, hey, I'm sorry for what I said at the dance. So I'm sorry for what I said. And, and we were cool. And I, I, I apologized to her and I said, fine. Two songs later, you know, I'm, I'm getting my groove on. And in the middle of it all, I get tapped on the back. And, I, and I, all I hear is, hey, Josh. Get tapped on the back. I turn around and I, I, I fucking get sucker punched by a chick, by a girl. She just smokes it right in the middle of the dance floor. And I stood there like, what the, what am I supposed to do? And so I, st I stomped off and I, I called my dad. I'm like, dad, hey, I just got punched in the, I just got sucker punched in the face. My dad goes, well, did you beat their fucking ass? Like that was his, you know? Yeah. And I go, hey, it was a girl. <laughs> and he goes, he just went dead silent. He just said, oh. And he goes, well, what are you gonna do, son? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, that's what I'm calling you, bro. You gonna give me some advice here? He's like, well, you can either enjoy the rest of your dance or go home. There's not much else you can do right now. What I mean, what are you gonna do? I said, all right, sweet. So I ended up joining the rest of the dance. But so all them girls got together after I told her I was sorry. So I don't understand. This is all before that junior year happened. And so there was like, I remember them going on, on Facebook. And I remember this one girl specifically, I don't even say her name, Jenny. She goes on Facebook, you know, think about getting, thinking about hitting a girl, get hit. Like, they were, like, trying to threaten me. And, of course, like, back then, they, you know, and this is not, I mean, I hate starting things, like, not to, not to say this, but, but, like, here's the, okay, so there was one black kid from CM, like, a couple of them. And, of course, everybody was scared. This is a Montana thing. I don't know if you can attest to this or not. But, you know, I'll, I'll, this kid's going to beat my... That's they kept saying, this kid was going to beat my ass. Well, first off, besides the color of his skin, he wrestled, he was on fucking JV, and I would have beat his ass. Like, sorry, bro, it's not happening that way. But that's who they were threatening me with. Mm. This kid's going to come beat your ass. You know, think about hitting a girl, you're going to get your ass beat. I'm just like, okay, I don't think so. Especially this guy... I saw him wrestle last week and he's on JV for CMR, dude. We ride the same bus, bro. I'm not scared of him. Just because he's some street fighter that he thinks he is, I promise you, it's not going to work out that way. So this was going on through social media, even beforehand. These girls saying that I was going to hit a girl. I never hit a girl. Like, I never was even thinking about it. Like, so they had all these threats towards me. Season started. I lose to Tanner. It was all these girls, same thing. They had something. They had it to come after me with. So... Great Falls then, so that was Great Falls about four weeks later after that first tournament hosts the largest all-class tournament in, in Montana um, called the Holiday Classic. Yeah. It used to be, I don't know if it is anymore, it used to be the toughest tournament besides state. Yeah, Even it was, tougher. It was tough, the toughest, yeah. yeah. tougher than state. That's Arlie, what we thought. Yeah. Because yeah, like, you would get all the yeah. classes. You want to just have C, B, A, double A. You get them all in there. So it's all like, right, motherfuckers. Yeah. yeah. It was an awesome tournament, man. Yeah. It was super tough. I mean, uh, Cole Rice from Marley has won it a couple times, uh, or once, or has been in the finals, I know for sure. I think he was in the finals. I don't think he won. Yeah, I think he actually we had some wins. guys that made it far, but we, I don't think we he, ever had a winner. Yeah, 
Um, so that that year, so at this point, this so this, we go to Great Falls. We're wrestling this tournament. I had lost to Tanner again in Butte at the Butte duels beforehand. So they they loved it. So I have two losses in one season already to the same guy. And uh, I closed the gap. I'd only lost by a point. First match, I lost by like three points. And I was like, oh, I'm going to end up beating this guy. Great Falls comes around, and we had the most stacked bracket. So in, in the semifinals in the semifinals match, I wrestled the kid, Luke Zeger, who ended up being a uh, four-time Montana State champion. And oh, he was a four-time. And man. then he went, on, he went on to be a seniors national champion and a junior national champion. Dude was super legit. He's beats, he, he pinned Val Rouser. In yeah, the, I remember in, that. That's yeah, when in, I knew him. I was in, like, oh, in fuck. The, in, the, in the finals. Yeah. So that's who I ended up wrestling in my semifinals match. He was on like a 101-match like a winning streak. And so that's why I had my semis. I beat Luke. I beat Luke in the semis to go to the finals. And then I ended up wrestling Tanner Sprinkle in the finals. We're at CMR. These girls are from CMR. These girls show up in a group of 15 of these girls wearing I Heart TS shirts. I Heart Tanner Sprinkle fucking bedazzled t-shirts, dude. I'll show you a photo of it. In, a, in the cheering section, just wanting this. They're there. They got fucking signs, dude. <laughs> I swear to God. Literally got signs. I, we love Sprinkle. We love Tanner. All this shit. This dude doesn't, he's a Mormon dude from Billings. He has no idea what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, <laughs> I'd have wrestling in the finals. They got a big cheering section. All Front row, they had all the girls, all of them lined up. They're cheering their signs and everything. You know, they made sure they got their photos with Tanner so they could post it on their Facebook and all this other stuff. And I was getting pictures sent to me and all this shit. Well, Tanner was on like a 130 match winning streak. Hadn't lost, this is his senior year, hadn't, hadn't lost since his freshman year. So he was on a terror. Well, I ended up beating Tanner too. So I beat Zager, it was like a 100 some match, it was like 230 some matches winning streak that I broke that same day. In one day. In the semifinals, I beat Luke, and then him, I beat. This is your sophomore year? My junior year. Junior year. Yeah, and then I beat Tanner in the finals that match. I remember getting off the mat and walking in front of those girls and going, <laughs> you know and so to, to really add to all the intensity of that year um the year before is when the tornado in montana came oh, i hit the um, uh metro metro yep yeah blew the roof right off that motherfucker just blew, <laughs> it, it literally did yeah. <laughs> yeah literally blew it right off because that's where the all class used yep. to be or it is now but still yep. yeah but so that was under construction. So that was the only year that we had separated, oh, okay. um, you know, class class state tournaments. Well, it just so happened that our class state tournament was in the same building, Great Falls. So my senior year, they all showed up, of course, and necked out. And uh, yeah, I lost to Tanner in the last five seconds of the match. And, I, and I've, I'll never say this about any other match in my entire life. I didn't get screwed. They didn't call what the call was on, on the match. He swiped back points. I put him to his back. He swiped back points, and then they they didn't give me backs. They they called it off. Hmm. They did a documentary on the Rousers called Living the Dream. It's on there for video proof of showing what's going on. It's never got the points. They called the side guy, which who doesn't have a say of anything. So there's a ref in the big time matches. You got a ref and they got a side ref. The side ref is just there to really kind of keep the flow of everything going. 
to kind of see. He's not there to call any. He doesn't make any calls. The side ref called it off, which is not a thing that happens. And so, yeah, I lost in the last five seconds of the match by a point. He ended up getting popping out. I had him on his back, holding him on his back. I threw him. I threw him in a head and arm, which I've only thrown one person ever in high school. And that was the match. And it's funny how like those big time matches, some random move like that's the one. That... <laughs> so I'm, I mean, I, I mean, I've won regionals probably five or six times Greco, and I was a Greco guy for a long time. So I had all these throws. I just never threw dudes in high school because I had awesome leg attacks. So I didn't really need to. So how many championships did you win in our state? Just once? Nope. Uh, so I lost that year. I remember after losing that year, I said I'll never lose a high school match ever again. Never lost a high school match ever again. Went 46-0 that next year and won a state title. So one state title. No, I got two. Two. Okay. Yeah, my sophomore year and then my senior year. So the reason I bring this up is there's obviously you're passionate about it. Your dad instilled this in you, right? You're a wrestler, wrestler, wrestler. So there's a lot of life involvement here. So coming out of such of intense, like for me, you know, like I was involved in a very high level team. Like we had some high level people, but seeing guys like that, those types of guys, like this is fucking life, like small town, Montana. Like these are all these guys do. Cause I'm sure you didn't work during high school or did you? Nope. It was AAU or whatever <laughs> kind of fucking wrestling on the off season. Right. Right. So like, this is your life at the time and your dad's instilling this into you. What was your thoughts now that, you know, I know that you had injuries. You probably wanted to continue wrestling. But what was your life thoughts after high school? Like, cool, what's next? Like, how did you feel? Did you only want to keep going with wrestling? Like, what was the next chapter for you? Because I know a lot of kids have that parental advice. Sports is all they have. And then it's like, cool, I gotta, you know, here's the real world. What's next? And that's like a big thing. Absolutely. The real world to me at the time, just because of where I, where I was at in life, was to cont- I was going to wrestle as long as I could go to college, which I signed, signed in college. But when I was in high school, my junior year, actually after that match, that the spring after I lost that match, I ended up getting involved in MMA. And so I, I was 17 years old at the time, and I fought a 23-year-old in the cage. And so, and this was kind of when the sport was kind of still taboo. Uh, it wasn't very. <laughs> yeah, yeah like the, there, it wasn't what it was now. Yeah. You know, so I, I remember, you know, and I, I remember getting into fighting and thinking, this is it. That I go, wrestling's cool, but I like this a lot more. Because <laughs> I, I, I genuinely, the one thing that I can say about the sport of wrestling is I genuinely do like the, I like this part of it. I like being, I'm a super physical, I'm, I'm explosive and I, I, I can wrestle fa- flashy, but I'm really, I'm gonna come down, I'm gonna track you down, I'm gonna come straight after you. I'm gonna beat. I'm gonna beat you up. Push, push the pace. Bloody you up. Embarrass you. Like that's just my. But I felt like fighting, especially at that time. I think the sports have evolved since in technical aspect. Oh Jesus! Yeah. But but specifically at that time, that was the era of coming down the pipe, putting pressure on people, and and wrestlers really, really dominating. And having a wrestling background was like that. I mean, if you're a wrestler, back in 2010. I mean, you're world champion. You're wrestler now, world champion, but uh, even then, more so. And you could almost be one, almost one-dimensional back then. Being able to take people I down. I mean, all the top guys were wrestlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah all of them. Matt Every Hughes, single, yeah. like all those dudes. It was just Hughes and Cortier, and, and uh, you know, even GSP was. A, I mean, even though, even though he. I mean, he was bigger than everybody, so yeah. he could use that to his advantage. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so the wrestling, the wrestling was seemed like it was going to be something that was. Sec primary until it became something that I went and said, oh, I'll, 
So in 2011, I said, like, I'm going to be in the UFC. That's what I said. I'm like, wrestling is sweet, but I'm going to make money. I was like, this is how I can make money. This is sweet. I want to be a fighter. I want to go fight in the UFC. So that's kind of what, like, my mind shift came. And I was hooked after that first fight. I was hooked. I loved doing it. I loved the training aspect more than I actually liked wrestling because um, it was uh, more dimensional. And wrestling, if you, you can ask anybody that even fights MMA, there's nothing even in all their MMA training. The hardest part of their MMA training is their wrestling practices. And so it was nice where I didn't have to, like, every single day go into that same, I'm going to try to kill you, you're going to try to kill me, dog-eat-dog dog practice mentality. Where someday we worked on striking. Someday we worked on some jiu-jitsu and technique. And, you know, it was a little bit more well-rounded versus every single day we're going to have a fist fight. And so that was what I really liked about the sport. It was had, had more of a dynamic, more variety. And so that's where my mindset was heading into college and after college was I was going to fight. How many fights did you have in high school? Just one. Okay. So then what happened after high school? Yeah, so after high school, I signed with Arizona State University, um, went down to college to Tempe, Arizona, and I, I was just going to plan to wrestle out my career at, at Arizona State. While still doing MMA training? Or? Uh, yes, yes and no. Yep. I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to fight. Uh, I actually was trying to fight Tanner Sprinkle. <laughs> I, I got, I, I, Did I, he do I, MMA? No. Oh. Yeah. I got like low-key like psycho after that. That was a year that I really began to do it for myself. After I lost, it was the best year. My junior year losing to Tanner and then having those losses that year was the best year of my life in my career because of what I learned in, learned in that year. It, and it, it was the first time in my life that I really was really faced adversity week in and week out. And the amount of effort, the amount of effort that I had to put forth to really rise to the occasion. I mean, I mean, I was I was doing privates in the morning at 7 a.m. I was doing film study every single night and then going to practice every single night. I mean, it was my life. I'd fucking like things taped in my locker. I mean, this is my mindset, and this is like really where I started to turn the corner in my career. After that match, I ended up like going and placing and doing very, very well. High-level national tournaments was the first time. Because I, I had moments of brilliance in my young youth career, but I never put it together at the big tournaments. And uh, started to put it together, and that's what allowed me to go to Arizona State. You know, I was a top 20 guy in the country, went down to Arizona State, and uh, yeah, ended up... Uh, I wanted to continue, wanted to continue my MMA while I was still in college, but not make it like a priority, just a summer thing. Um, yeah, my, my, my freshman year down there, Arizona State, man, it was tough. Once again, I'm kind of back to, back to a freshman year all over again in high school. And uh, I ended up getting injured uh, my freshman year in college and hurt my back really bad. Ended up having uh, four back surgeries in a nine-week time period, and ultimately ended my college career. Was it just like medically that like you can't do this, or was it a personal choice? Yep. So um, after the surgeries, uh, I took a you burn a year, and then if I ever wanted to come back, they'd grant you another reg or a medical redshirt year. But you burn a year first of eligibility. Essentially, it's a medical year. So I had a medical year, and during that year, I was trying to make a comeback, and it just wasn't happening. So consulted with the doctors, and so I got declared medically ineligible, which they granted me a medical hardship, where they would honor that the college has to honor the scholarship for the athlete to put him through college, but I wouldn't participate in the sport. 
So they would continue to pay my schooling and my scholarship, but I wouldn't be wrestling. And so I received a, a medical hardship. So just, you know, I wasn't super close with you at the time, knew of you. Like anyone who came out of Montana, if they were doing other things, I would follow their trajectory. Um, so you're medically, uh, you know, not able to wrestle. So what was your thought process at the time when all you know is wrestling? You kind of weren't really focused on MMA and what was the next step? So thank, thankfully, before I went down there, my, I had a, one of my teammates introduce me to network marketing. And so I got involved in a company called Vima which is an affiliate marketing company based out of Tempe. And so during, during this whole process, I, was, I started getting introduced to, to multi-level marketing, business, entrepreneurship. So this all happened and obviously my world came tumbling down. I'll tell you what, I, I lived in a deep depression for quite some time, for a, a couple years, addicted to pills. I mean, having mood swings. I mean, I was fucked up, man. And you know, it, it got it got really, really bad for for a little while. But thankfully, amongst all of it, network marketing and business really saved me because it gave me something else where I didn't have to completely lose myself. I'd lost myself in my identity. You know, I go from being a Division One athlete at the highest level to I like looked in the mirror and I'd lost like 25 pounds of muscle. Could barely tie my shoes. Could barely wipe my own ass. Having trouble walking to class. Couldn't sit down for more than 10 minutes, couldn't sleep every single night, and this went on for a full year. You know, I'm 19 years old. Did you still go to uh, college? I was, this is, so this is after, so this is before I ended up walking away from school. Okay. So, so then I'm trying to finish school, all this is going on. I had four surgeries in nine weeks while school was happening. Spent 35 days in the hospital while school was happening. I had to get an extension on my classes. Like, all this shit was going on, man. It was a rough year. And so, rough couple of years. And so, thankfully, amongst that time, I had involved myself in a network marketing company. And while I was really on my journey with the back stuff, thankfully, there's a few people that I had enrolled during that time that really exploded and took the business off. And so, that was really a, a, a point of relief where I was like, well, I'm not wrestling anymore, so let's put some time and focus in a network marketing. So that was like the segue into business. It was like, all right, well, guess I'm not wrestling. It's time to make some money. And were you able to just use that to fund everything? And were you still going to school while doing the marketing? So my second year of college, I was. Um, so I was, I was making anywhere between two and three two dollars and $3,000 a month from network marketing that year, which when you're in college is yeah. <laughs> big money. You know, so I, mean, I was making like $30,000 a year as a sophomore in, in college. And... I mean, it was great. Uh, you know, I, it, it was fueling my college, and I just remember, so I had already received the medical hardship. They were going to pay for my schooling. But I was like, dude, I was taking, I, I was on, on Skype calls, three-way phone calls, one-on-one -on -one calls, doing the whole sales. I mean, I had an organization of 1,500 people that if I had matched, if I had matched in terms of uh, enrollments, that I had the ability to be producing anywhere between five hundred and $700,000 a month on my network. I just had to match it specifically. So the, I was like sitting here thinking, man, I have a gold mine that I'm sitting on. Those two to three thousand isn't much. This could be two to three thousand a day if I really work towards it because I already have the infrastructure in my business to have it. I just need one or two people to really take off with this. And so during that time, I would like skip class to take calls. I'd be in the middle of class. I'd walk out into the hallways, be doing Skype calls, one-on-ones, 
you know, presentations, the whole nine yards. And so all this is going on my, my, my sophomore year in college, and I just said to myself, man, why am I even fucking here? You know, what am I doing here? I dropped out of all my biology classes, completely changed my major. So I was on the, I was on the essentially, Arizona State doesn't have pre-med. They have, a, it's called pre-health track. Essentially, it's their pre-med requisite to be able to get into med school. That's what I was on. I dropped out of all those classes, and I got it. I went, I went to the counselor, the, the the advisor, and said, "Hey, I want your easiest fucking." Yeah, they gave me. I want. I was then going to be a communications major. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I said, "What's the easiest route? I don't want any biology. I don't want any of that. Give me the easiest shit you got." So I told her straight up. Yeah, I said, "Well, this is it. Yeah, communications." So I said, "Sweet, this is all I want. I just want a degree. They're paying for it." I said, this, I said, I'm probably never going to use it. I'm going to use it in business. So like, well, how about you do business? Like, I don't want business degrees. Give me something easy. And so while this was all going on, I just started having like, to me, to me at that point, I didn't want to be there. School, I hated school. Had no purpose to be there. I knew it was a means to end to get a piece of paper that I was never going to use. I was already making money. And at that point in time, I'd already been introduced to people that were making, you know, good financial advisors from Montana. But I had some mentors, I mean, that are still in my life that have made hundreds of millions that then were showing me what they've done and giving me the same books and things. And not. so I got introduced to personal development when I was 19 years old, thinking Grow Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I mean, Robert Kiyosaki and Napoleon Hill and I mean, all these different people that were around me. Jeffrey Combs, who was my mentor, I had hired him when I was 19 years old. You know, all these people that were around me. And so I said, I don't require this. I, I, I hate school. I'm not doing anything. I'm barely showing up anyway. It's the first time in my life that I had I had a 2.8 one semester. I was a I was an honor student my entire life. I just didn't care anymore. And I said, well, obviously this is going to be reflective. And I just I remember writing my dad's big letter and telling him I was dropping out of college. And uh, ended up dropping out. Yeah. How'd that go with the parents? I think at the time he really understood where I was coming from, so he, he saw it firsthand, and he and so. He just, the big thing with him was, is that at the time he was helping me pay for rent and some other finances because I was still involved with college. And I was still involved with uh, wrestling. Um, so the, his biggest thing was, is when you're no longer on scholarship and you're no longer doing this, you're paying for your own life. And so I said, fine, that's cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, after that, and, and he, he understood my mindset because that entire summer when I was at his house, before the, the summer heading into my sophomore year, we would throw home events at his house. And two or three times a week, I'd pack his house with 30 people every week doing presentations. I mean, all day long, I'm, I'm like, I'm grinding. This is what, this is, I mean, this has got this. All got that me. work ethic and direction of yeah. wrestling you're just putting here. This is that repetition, the system and the method that I was talking about earlier. And I put it, I was like, man, this is great. Now let's make some money with it. So he, he actually, he was cool with it. He just let you do it. He let me do it, man. Did he? Did he like it, or was he just like, ah, oh, he needs to just do it? So I enrolled my dad. He was the first person I ever enrolled. He was the reason why I led to the, all those people. He enrolled a guy from from Hamilton, Montana, Jordan Waldo, and Jordan led to over a thousand people. So without my dad in that business, I. That's, okay. that's so how it works. You definitely help support it. Yeah. Uh, if you were to go back, would you have gone to college? You know, let's say wrestling wasn't involved, or would you have changed that? Or do you think that that was good? I don't ever live in regret. The only thing that I can say that is if 
if I was ever go if I was ever go back and change anything, the only re the only reason why that I would have stayed in college was simply for the networking side of things. Okay. Two, two more two more years of networking, I mean, is huge. Yep. You know, so so I had already knew at the time I wasn't going to use what I was using in school because I, I mean I'm essentially I'm a school of hard knocks and I was learning from a different infrastructure. So like. The methods, the materials, and systems that I was using, and the skill sets that I was developing, I didn't feel could have been taught at the time in school through text. But I felt that school and college granted me the ability to be able to network. And if I was to go back, that would be the only reason. That and would... this is your first time out of Montana, so you're like learning a lot of life lessons, right? Personal yeah, was... development. Yeah, man, this was the first time I mean, first time Arizona's I... a lot different than Great Falls. Yeah, but, yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even get into a lot of the other backstory, but I mean, essentially, the moment I got down there, you know, I'm a kid from Montana, never smoked marijuana, and then heavily got into illicit drug use when I got into Arizona, especially after I got injured. You know, that whole year was a really tough year, and that's all I did the whole entire year was just <laughs> seduce myself from drugs. Yeah, and, um, you know, I never, I never, I mean, I, I'd done, I had used ecstasy, molly, and cocaine before I ever smoked marijuana. And so, you know, the, Arizona was a, a big eye-flashing to me, you know, and, and a big eye-opener, rather, to me, and about the realities of the world and what I got introduced to. And, you know, I'm grateful for it, but, yeah, being a small-town city boy from Montana, you know, getting into the new city and, and having this new experiences, there was a lot of new shit that I was getting involved with. Um, now with the network marketing, how long did you stay in Arizona and continue to do that? So that was yes. Yeah, so, so that whole next year, I ended up staying in was in, in not Missoula. Stayed in <laughs> staying in Arizona that whole next year after I dropped out, and um, it was an interesting year. The company was under some major heat through the FTC, the Federal Trade, and there because what happened was is we had a thing called YPR, Young People's Revolution. Essentially, this huge, massive explosion of college kids in the network marketing industry. The message was, and it, and it completely attacked the, 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 education, the education platform of what society wants you to do. Especially education, there's big fucking money in it. You know, universities are, you know, go to Arizona State, you know, forty to $50,000 a semester, or sorry, a year. Well, I mean, now that there's the paying of athletes in college, right. and then you look at the, I don't know if you watch a lot of college sports, but like I'm an Oklahoma fan. Right. They just lost their coach to USC, oh, and they're paying him all that money, he gets a private jet, they're buying him out of his houses with $500,000 over listing for a bonus. Like, there's money there, and we all know it's big business, right? And I like to talk about college as I went to college. I would never not go back and change it. I don't use my degree anymore, but right. I'm doing a journalism approach here. I learned a lot of those skills. Right. But that was, for me, a must-needed four years of learning real life outside of living with my mom. Understood. And paying my own bills and learning all those things. Right. So for you, it's interesting coming from that athlete background. Then you're connecting. You're learning as an adult. Now you're in this network marketing, which I'm familiar with. I never quite was into it, but I was in sales things that were somewhat similar. And you do learn a lot of things, but it's like we have this 
fuck, we got to figure it out or else we fail. We put all this work ethic into network marketing, right? And you could see your business developing. So I'm just curious of those backgrounds and those pieces. So you could keep going, but that's just kind of where no, I'm No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, getting, into, getting into the network marketing realm was, you know, it was new, but it was something, it wasn't new because it was something I'd always knew how to do. And I've seen it, I've saw it from, you know, from a young boy and just putting that into it. It was the new era of business that I was like, man, I started putting it together. Like, man, I grew up watching my dad run a traditional business. I learned these sales skills. I learned these people skills, these communication skills. I learned all this. And now I got introduced to something that's a new wave of that, where it's not a traditional business. It's at home. It's, it's on the go. So wherever I have a telephone, it gave me that freedom. And that's where the, the beginning of everything really changed my paradigm, completely shifted my paradigm on creating commerce and income was having low, low overhead and more freedom and being able to use your skill set to be able to leverage some of the different aspects of network marketing. And so it was like, it was great. You know, my, my monthly cost was $150 to be part of the business. But there was no capital that I could make, and I didn't have to have a traditional retail location, and I could do it all over my phone. And I was like, this is when I was like, man, I'm going to make money for the rest of my life from this device right here. And I, just, I, truly, I truly believe that. I go, this is it. This thing's going to make me millions of dollars, and I'm, I'm never going to have to fucking open up a facility. <laughs> So how long did that last? You're talking about the FTC okay. and, and whatnot. Yeah, so, so, that, so that lasted a few years, actually. I was involved with them a few years. All uh, in Arizona? All in Arizona, yep, yep. And they ended up getting shut down by the FTC. They were, for a legal pyramid scheme, uh, Vima provided 150 pages worth of documentation in 36 hours. The court case took five years. They were the very first network marketing company in history to ever win a case against the FTC. Nobody, nobody has ever won a case against the FTC. I think one has one since, um, but they were the first ones ever saying like, hey, we provide documentation that we are not an illegal pyramid scheme. But what happened was, is what I was going back to the YPR, is they were challenging the infrastructure of the education system. So I do that. when I was in, down in Tempe, we would have these home events where there'd be fucking hundreds of college kids packed in the backyard, uh, somebody standing on a table, and the pitch was, do you want to work 40 hours a week for 40 years of your life to one day wake up hating your fucking job, or you want to get fucking rich, drive a fucking Lamborghini? Like, that's, that's what it was. It was like real life, like, like Wolf of Wall Street. Well, I mean, a lot of college kids, they want to make money, right? Yes. And yeah, a lot of them are fucking around and not really taking their education seriously, so... You get into this position, try to tie it to money, they're going to go do it. They're going to do it, yeah. So they, I mean, so we were challenging this, the whole infrastructure. And it, we, we, weren't, we weren't lying. It was like, you know, if you, you go to college, you know, you go to, the, the whole thing was, you go, to, you go to high school, you get grades, you go to college, you get good grades, you know, and you get out of, you get out of college, your 70th at the time is like 70, the average student loan debt was like $70,000. You get out of college, you go to $70,000, you make a forty or $50,000 a year income, and you're paying back this loan the rest of your life. And then like, that's what we were promoting. 
Which is real life shit. It's, no, there's yeah. some reality of it. I mean, it's told everywhere. I was part of a sales organization out of college that's pretty much the same thing, different, not network marketing. They right. work off telecom companies. Yep. But it's the same type of shit. They preach that to you. And, you know, some people, it's not necessarily their strengths. They kind of get involved in the system, whatever. But there is opportunity to make money there. But, you know, for me, I look back at them like, what the fuck was I doing? You know, I was just a young kid that kind of got lost in the sauce. But, I wouldn't be where I am today without those skills. Right. And um, we could talk about that later, but keep going. No, but so absolutely. So yeah, just, it ended up getting shut down with the FTC. There was a big thing on Virginia Tech. They banned it from Virginia Tech. It made national news. It was on CNN, this YPR, Young People's Revolution. And parents were calling in because once, once it started to challenge the school, which is a multi, multi, multi billion dollar industry and infrastructure, and we were on our way to a billion dollar company. And so they want to do everything possible to completely eradicate us from the whole spectrum, shut us down. They were in court for five years, froze all capital, all assets, everything was frozen. And so everybody went off and did other things at that time. Uh, so how many years after your wrestling, your freshman year was this that you were done with? So it was about a, about a year and a half. And you were able to do that, su- supplement your fe- your life in Arizona just through network marketing? 100%. Yep. So now that you're, you're done, you, you pretty much got told to shut down wrestling. You got forced to shut down with that. Yeah. So it's like, oh, fuck, what do we do now? Yeah, I did door-to-door sales. Okay, with what? Solar. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was the company? Uh, Pure Energy. Okay, I don't think I know them. Yeah, but... they're a real small, real small company. Uh, they're Mormon ran. Most successful door-to-door companies have And it. this was in Arizona? Yeah, Arizona. And yeah. how long did you do that? Uh, six, uh, a little over six months. It wasn't very long? Yeah, just for the season. I just did it for the season. Just to make money? Yeah, m- made a lot of money. What was your thought process? Like, cool, I'm going to keep it in the solar. Solar is great. Or I need to go home. Like, what, what was next? Uh, uh, oh, afterwards? Yep. Well, I called my buddy. I, I said, I said I'm, not, I'm not happy. I called Val Rouser. Told him I wasn't happy with my life. So I was making good money. But I wasn't happy. Were you making good money doing solar, like good, good money yeah. or just like whatever? Yeah, like anywhere between five to 8000 a month. Okay. You know, so I mean, decent That's money. So at the time you're like, fuck yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is good money. And I, I mean, like guys I was bringing on, I mean, I'd, I had like a ten or $15,000 a month, you know, so I mean, those are good months. Yep. Yeah. And, and so, and, and there was progression for me to be able to get into a different position within the door-to-door industry at the time that I saw that myself could really develop myself into, um, that would pay more even than that. And so I was like, okay, this is my next step because it's big money. This is something I'm good at. Um, but yeah, so I only, I only knocked a season, which was six months down there. Um, and called Val Rouser. He was in Utah. He just had gotten the head coaching position at West Jordan High School, um, it, just south of Salt Lake. I called him, and he said, well, why don't you come here and coach wrestling with me? So fucking two days later, packed my shit, drove up to Montana, showed up at my doorstep unannounced to my dad, Said, hey, what's up? Happy Merry Christmas. Uh, moving to Utah. I enjoyed uh, Christmas in Montana. Flew down, flew down back to Arizona. Packed my car and dro- drove to Utah or Utah. So you have all these different experiences. You end up going back to wrestling. Did you want to stay in door to door? Did you want to stay into marketing and stuff? Or at the time, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to just this. It was easy decision. Yeah, just wrestling. Okay. I go, fuck it. I'm getting back to my roots. Now let's just talk about some of the learning experiences that you had before going back to the wrestling through door-to-door sales, because I've done door-to-door sales with Telecom with that company okay. before. You know, I was terrified at first. Uh, I ran a painting business. It's like 
college pro student painters yep. based out of Seattle. That's the same thing door to door. Right. You know, and in Montana, I'm this 18 year old kid living on this business thing that just said you could make this money. I wasn't making any money at the time. I'm knocking on people's doors in the fucking snow of Montana. Right. They're telling me to piss off. You know, I was a late bloomer. I look like I'm fucking 12. They're like, this kid's going to paint my house. Get the fuck out of here. Right. Um, just to get the summer jobs. Ended up fucking killing it through relentless work. You know, freshman year of college, everyone's partying. I'm out fucking knocking on doors after class, you know, trying to get shit. Because for me, coming from quite a poor family, it's like I could only give a college four years worth of payment. Like I don't have, right. I'll be in loans for the fucking ever if I, you know, don't right. just do four years. So I had to figure it out. Um, so I'm interested to you going through all these life things. Like what, you know, do you feel like those were great experiences? Do you feel like it was just a money thing? Like talk to me a little bit about door-to-door sales and network marketing. Cause a lot of people that'll view into this probably be like, ah, oh, fuck that shit. Or that's, you know, stupid. Or, you know, a lot of people have a stig- stiz- like a stigma on that. Like that's just some bullshit stuff. But for me, I, I, I can attest anything that I'm doing that I'm successful. A lot of those things, even my confidence, the way I got confidence, I think was door to door sales through that painting job and through later into Seattle, like having to live in like commissionable, hundred percent commission. I didn't have base salary. Like I had to go and fucking get sales to eat, to, to, to drive, to do those things. And I think those were, you know, Mark Cuban talks about it. Like he used to do door to door sales. He's like, I highly recommend, like, even if I have kids, I want them to go through that because I think those life lessons are so valuable. So I'm curious if you have that mindset on it. Did you get, you know, do those experiences help you to entrepreneurship today? Or what are your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, first off, sales is the highest paid profession in the world. And so when I was introduced to the network marketing spectrum, I had already had back in my mind that I said, this is the way. And so and I said, any way that I could utilize my skill set, that was the thing about a sales that I saw when I was 20 years old is I, I called it personal development with a payment plan. <laughs> when I started to get into all these different books, CDs, tapes, coaching, mentorships, and all these different things, as I started to realize the more that I personally developed, developed my skill set, de- developed my method and system, the more success I would have. So I, I viewed sales as a personal development plan, or personal development with a payment plan. And so when I got into door to door, I felt that, that was the highest level of sales that you can get because you're creating a sale out of the ether, out of thin air. You've never met this person before, they've never met you before. So in 10 or 15 seconds, you have to be able to connect to them, have that connectability, that likability, and that trustability to be able to get their trust enough to listen to listen to what you're saying in an instant, out of the ether. And so I believe at that time that that was just another way for me to really develop into that skill set. And that, that year of personal development really, that's when I really started getting, I mean, I understood, I started to really begin these concepts of consciousness, connect, connecting with people, really beginning to understand the, the, the ebb and flow of question asking and how to, how to really articulate and ask questions in a series to be able to get to a desired result. Understand the patterns of people, how different people operate, the different types of people, and how to approach these different situations. And so when I look at the sales industry, whether it was door-to-door network marketing, door-to-door specifically because it's more the, the, the intensity is a little higher, but it really allowed me to get into my body and, in, and really put those skills into action, into play, to really say, okay, like, you know, I'm great over the phone. I've been doing, the, doing this over the phone. What is it if I can go to somebody's door, knock on their door, and create a, you know, at the time, our, our systems were fifty dollars to $70,000. I'm creating a $70,000 sale out of the ether. So to be able to 
to be able to maintain the ability to continually do that over and over again, you your skill set has to rise. Your personal development has to rise. So when, and you're getting told no a lot. Fucking lots of no's. A lot of people can't handle that. Yeah, it, well, a lot of people live in a rejected body, and that comes from childhood. I don't know if I'll get into all that, but, <laughs> but most people are abandoned, live in their abandonment and their rejection from their childhood. So they take rejection as personal, which many of us have been abandoned and rejected by family members, by parents. When you're a child and you had to grow up too quick, you know, you grew up in a single. It's you know, you're you're only. Uh, your mother was the only one around, right? Yep. So you're, you know, you know, your father had essentially abandoned you or rejected you, and you create these resentments. Well, all these tied old sets of feelings are then projected and 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 put into put into whatever you're doing as an adult. So that was what I started to begin to understand was how the limitations from my childhood of my own low esteem, my own levels of, of self-esteem that had been through abandonment, rejection, unresolved feelings of overwhelmed were directly correlated to my ability to create commerce and results on the doors and in my businesses. And this is all I do today. Like, this is my coaching. This is my coach on specifically today is, is what we're talking about here is the events that are shaped feelings. But that was my first introduction really to it is, is, is being told no, but not making that no, I'm not personal, I'm not, it's not a personal no. They're not telling me no, they're just saying no, and it is what it is. It's just like, do, like there's nothing personal in business. There are some personal things in business, but when you're approaching somebody's door and they say no, they're not saying no to you, they're just saying no. And that's when you can really detach yourself from the outcome, then you can really get into that groove where there's no no's. And I think there was a book called Go For No, um, that was like the more no's leads to a yes. I do believe that in a way. Um, I'm, LOAs, baby, yeah, lots yeah, of averages, yeah, right? Yeah. I, it is a lot of the average, yeah, you know, which is which is good. But I also believe if you can develop your your skill set to a high, yeah, yeah. The, the, the law of averages can become better. So that's what you know. Learning those, learning all of these these skill sets has really assisted me in navigating through life. And I, like I said. First off, besides that, sales is the highest paid profession in the world. And after that, the skill set that you utilize in sales is life. Negotiation, communication, articulation, <laughs> understanding consciousness, personal development, fucking dating and relationships. I mean, like all of it can be tied back to every single bit of literature. I mean, I got books all around here. I mean, I got tapes and things all around here. Anytime you open one, it can be completely correlated to specific life events. That was great. So now we're done with solar. Yeah. Your wrestling coach. How long did that last? Did you, you know, set up this thought that I want to continue to be a coach? Was it just a short-term thing? Like, what was the mindset? Yeah, man. So, you know, I'm always a fucking big dreamer. So, you know, I, I was living off of their, living in their couch or on their couch in Orm, Utah, for six months. And, and how old were you at the time? I just about to turn 21. So I was 20 at the time. And we ended up moving into a, a three-bedroom apartment. Uh, Val, and I, Val and I, and one of the, the head, rest, head assistant wrestling coaches for, for Utah Valley, we moved into an apartment together. And Val and I were coaching wrestling full-time. And then uh, I had started another brand, and I was going to create a, a wrestling. We ended up starting a wrestling program called Dream Bros Wrestling Academy. And so our idea was we we're going to stay in Utah uh, piggyback off, coach the high school season, but then we're going to build a cl wrestling club. 
And so we created this big brand and all these different things and all this stuff. And that was going to be it. That was that was the. And that was all between you guys. Did someone recommend this? Did you actually spend a bunch of money to like build it up by yourselves? Did you get loans? Like what? What? Yes. How deep was this? Yes, yeah, so I'm a hustler. So uh, after 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 19, I became psycholi- psycho psychologically unemployable. I could never work a job ever again in my life. I wrote that in the back of a notebook when at a VEMA convention here. Uh, in Las Vegas when I was 19 years old, but I'll say I, I still have the notebook. I will never work a job a day in my life, and I've I've committed to that. Now let's just say I don't re- I don't um, <laughs> I don't recommend that for everybody. <laughs> yeah. I fucking live broke as fuck, down as fuck, at rock bottom for a long time. Made a really lot of bad mistakes. Lived on couches, couch surfed. I mean I, I mean it wasn't like I was living luxurious. I mean, I had a large organization that got completely shut down, so all that had to go. So I had to find new ways. And I, I've been broke many, many times with not much in my bank account, living on people's couches, doing that thing. And um, so I don't suggest that route. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, if I look back and say, hey, you know what, if I worked a normal job and had a little bit mm-hmm. less of it. But I found ways to get by during the time. During the time, I would find little ways to hustle. Like we sold like three or four thousand dollars worth of, of t-shirts. Val and I did paid up, paid my bills every every month. You know, I was only living off like a thousand dollars worth of bills at the time. Had like a three or four hundred dollar rent. You know, you know, car payment, everything else. I'm barely eating food. You know, so that so I, it supplied me, and I always found ways to to hustle. But so I took every dollar that we essentially made and really put it back into the into wrestling. Um, and yeah, there was something that we were going to run with together in in Utah. We had we did a first season of high school wrestling, um, and then we ended we we went straight into our, our kids program with the Dream Bros Wrestling Academy, and we did a full season then. And then uh, God, the universe had a different plan for me. Ended up meeting a girl from the Midwest, and ended up falling in love with this girl. Moved her out to Utah with us, and so she lived with us out in Utah. And uh, yeah, we the, we ended up deciding that. We weren't gonna stay. Val didn't want to be in Utah anymore. He had a girlfriend back. He had a girlfriend in Utah. He he didn't want to coach wrestling anymore at West Jordan, and so then Brooke and I, that was my girlfriend at the time, decided that her big dream was to move to Hawaii. So we ended up just moving back from um, from Utah to Montana, and so we we I completely then walked away from the wrestling then. Did you go to Hawaii? We did. Yeah. Right after that. Yeah, so I spent six months in Montana stacking up some cash lit in my dad's basement with my girlfriend. And then, uh, yeah, her dream was to move to Kauai. We then moved to, we moved to Kauai and we did work trade. Well, it's called Wolfing, uh, Worldwide Workers on Organic Farms. We were supposed to work on a farm in Kauai. Ended up getting the opportunity to work on a farm. We got, we got uh, accepted to work on a meditation facility and so we moved to Kapaa, Kauai, and worked on a meditation facility. So how long were you in Hawaii? Six months. So her and I were living in a renovated tour bus in on the island of Kauai. About straight island life, man. Island life, baby. <laughs> yeah, I was eating a vegan diet. Um, had super long hair. Didn't wear shoes anywhere that I went. Uh, yeah, I mean, living living the life like like super hippie at that time. Completely didn't care about money. Completely right, like. The whole success and things like that. This is where I really began to lose the ego and the ego's attachment to having to like be the man. My whole life, I had to be the man. You got to be the best. You got to be the best, the top, number one, being the man. 
having success means that you're the man. Having all these things means that you're the man. So that was the first time in my life that I realized that I didn't have to be the man. I just had to be me. And it was great not having to really put this pressure on making money. And a lot of people in my life didn't hate it. And my dad fucking hated it, dude. I mean, I grew my hair out, did a lot of drugs, was a fucking hippie, you know, live, live life on the edge. But it was a great time in my life to really explore and navigate my spirituality. It was something that was really missing in my life that I really had never connected before was my spiritual self and that connectivity with God and source. And this was a time where I, was, I really allowed myself to really step out of this ego's attachment to things and identifying with accomplishments. My whole life, my complete confidence and identity was tied to my accomplishments. So who are you and who was I when I was completely stripped of my identity of being a wrestler, of being successful, of having money, who are you? Were your soul having a human experience? This was the first time in my life that I actually truly felt that I was having a human experience, not overran by the ego seeking validation through my accomplishments. And do you think this all came internally from like, okay, this is just what it is? Did your girlfriend have a lot of influence into that open space? Because that's a complete 180. Absolutely. My, my girlfriend was incredible. I mean, I, have, I still love her to this day. She was a phenomenal woman. She was, on this journey, she was on this journey with me of spirituality. But I just think it was life. I always tell, like, I've talked about this many times in my podcast. I've done psychedelics hundreds and hundreds of times. I can't even count. I've grown mushrooms. I used to microdose on mushrooms. I've done, you know, massive amounts of, of psychedelic drugs, acid. I've done DMT. I mean, she's done ayahuasca. I mean, like, and so I, I always think to myself, was it divine? Was it, was it this, was this divine? Meaning was this the path that I'm on? Was this already pre-written? Was this already something I was supposed to do? Or did some ways that goes off to like the philosophy of free will You know, how much are we actually navigating through life through free will? Or is this what's meant to be actually supposed to actually happen exactly how it happens? And I think you can make changes in your life and really kind of maybe veer your path. But my association was is like, okay, when I went and did this, was it my experience with living with monks in a meditation facility was when I was doing massive amounts of psychedelics that this create a complete neurochemistry like a, a navigation center in my brain to really open this new portal, this connection with source, consciousness, awareness, understanding, or was that always part of the plan regardless? Like, you know, that's, that's why I always think to myself, so I don't know. So when it comes to that, to being introduced to that, I just believe in that, being in a place of consciousness now that I am in clarity and sobriety, I don't have any of those things in my life anymore, almost three years. So it's like, could I have got, I gotten here without all that? The world would never know. But my influence with Brooke at the time was incredible. She had that divine, that divine feeling that was her wantingness to go to Hawaii. I was there for the trip, the ride. The island ultimately split us up. And yeah, after, the, after that, yeah, I never, I saw, the island split us up. She stayed there, worked on a farm. I traveled back to Montana. And she was there for another six months, decided that she was going to come back to Montana. We were supposed to move to Missoula together. And during that time, that six months that she was there, we'd really grown apart. She was home for three days, ended up buying her a, uh, a rental car. She drove back to Missouri, and I haven't seen her since. Um, did you live with your parents when you went back to Montana, your own spot? Yeah, moved back, to, moved back into my dad's basement. 
So why didn't you just go and run the, the family business? You know, I never had a family business. I always am curious because you see a lot of the kids, you know, back and forth on that debate. Either they do or they don't. So I'm curious. You have the, your dad, such an influence in life, has given you all this structure. You're like, fuck, dude, I've been everywhere in between. You're still pretty young in your adult life. Like, why not just do that? Did that ever cross your mind? Was that ever a, a plan or? No. <laughs> the... No, because in no disrespect to anything that my dad's ever created, I mean, I only have the utmost respect for him. I could have walked into a six-figure income right then. Yeah, why not? I, didn't, I knew that was my path. It wasn't what made me happy because I had already lost the ego, dude. I didn't give a fuck about the money at that time. So I said, I didn't, I didn't want to do something I didn't want to do simply due to the term for finances. I already lived broke. So what was being broke? What does that even mean, you know? And so, and at this time, I was. This is when I became a lot more deeper into my addiction as well. I don't think that I could even handle the responsibility that was required to really step into that. I was scared and fearful of the responsibility that would have been required to step into having that position because I was such an addict. And so, probably a little bit of both. A little bit of knowing that I never wanted to really do this long term, and second, that I couldn't handle the responsibility that was required to work for my father because I was an addict. How would you explain the Hawaii, I have to ask, how would you explain the Hawaiian life? I've been to Hawaii once. I had the luxury of going with a guy that used to live there for three years and he had all of his friends there. So I got a different Hawaii experience than most people. I did go to the big island in Honolulu, so okay. not all the, you know, naturally right. islands, but, um, you know, that's a trip and an experience. You talk about fucking no shoes and eating, you know, and living off the, the land. Um, what was your favorite thing about it, and what was your biggest learning experience? My favorite thing about the island was it was it was really once again going back to being free. It was really somewhere I felt that I could just be just myself, and that society there wasn't completely driven by things. And so I was involved with the spiritual community. And I love the island. It was a cool place to see cool things. And I got to experience a new part of, new aspect of life that I'd never experienced before. Uh, we went and hiked the Nepali coast. Maybe we do another podcast sometime and I tell you that full story. It's way too long for this. But uh, you got to come to the in house studio. Yeah, dude. well, got to get yeah, you in there. It, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Nepali coast story was absolutely ridiculous and crazy. And had some crazy moments. And the thing that I didn't like about it was I felt that during that time that my experience wasn't the full experience because Brooke and I, we weren't on the fringe, but she, she wanted to be, she felt in her life and journey that she needed to be alone for a while. And I kept telling her, well, we've already been dating for like two and a half years. When do you fucking be alone? You know, like, what's that? What's that? So like forever, you know? Fuck, dude, I've got nothing else going on, man. Like, you're my everything. This is all I got, you know? Like, I was good. I wanted to marry her and, you know, be with her and have children like this. I was like, damn. Like, she was my soulmate and one of many soulmates that we may all have in our lives, you know? And, and so I go, what the fuck, man? You know? And so I'm sitting here trying to con tell her different. So that's for the only, nothing about the island specifically I didn't like. But it was just where we were at within our own relationship or respective relationship that, really changed the feel and the energy of, of living on the island.
What was your biggest learning experience from the island? My biggest learning, my biggest learning experience from the island was really the, the, inter, the interdimensional relationship that her, her, her and I had and, grow, and growing from a man on a, in a place. Because I tell you what, the island, they always say it's got island vibes, and that's a real thing. And Kauai is like, I've never played into this. They, they say be careful if you're newlyweds or in a relationship coming to that island. The island has breakup energy, so they call it. Mm. But it's not bad juju energy. It's more div- divine energy to really go on a path of self and really detach from ego. And that's what was happening. So my le- biggest learning experience was is that the situation between Brooke and I was once again a situation where it was my very first love that I've ever had in my life. And to this day, the only woman that I've loved. That was eight years ago. And, and truly loved and was in like a spiritual connected relationship with. And it really taught me then once again the detachment of ego, of possessiveness with somebody else. That I don't own you and you don't own me just because you're my girlfriend or significant other. I don't own you. And so I, that was like that first like I felt loss of it because I was so attached to somebody and so intertwined with somebody being my everything and my yeah. all things. Where I was like, well, I need to be a full man on my own regardless. It's great that they're an asset to your life, but nobody's your everything and nobody's your all things and nobody's yours. And we're in this very corporal body, this rented meat suit on corporal time. <laughs> you know, we're this meat suit traveling through space, essentially, is what we're doing. We're consciousness in this flesh vehicle going and navigating ourselves through space. And we don't own anything. All of this is temporary. The only thing that is forever is consciousness. This body is temporary. This conversation is temporary. It's all temporary. So not getting attached to the temporary and really beginning to separate myself from the ego of the dualities of the world of having this and having that and having this and having that. That's what the island really showed me was especially with our love and our breakup was I moved there like this girl was my everything. This is my life. This is my story. Once again, another thing I was like going tying it back to wrestling. I'm supposed to fucking wrestle my whole life. And all of a sudden, nah. <laughs> you know? I'm just gonna do network marketing the rest of your life. Nah. Oh, I'm supposed to be with this girl the rest of your life. Nah. Like, fuck, dude, can I get a break? Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? This all happened when I turned 23, you know? I'm like, what the fuck, dude? No wonder I became an addict. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, have you ever gone back to Hawaii? Ne- never have. Do you want to? I do. I want to go back and I want to hike the Nepali coast again and I and go back there for two weeks. Hike back up there. Let's go, dude. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll go back up there. I want, I want to do it for two weeks and, and uh, hike back up into the gardens. and, and That's on Kauai? In Kauai, yeah, the Nepali coast. Yeah, the Nepali coast trail. That's crazy. Um, when did this Discovery Channel thing happen? Oh, shit. Was that shortly after or is this yes. later? No, right after, man. So you're in Montana, you're in the basement again. You're not going to work for your dad's company. Nope. I grabbed a fucking camera. And I, I bought that I bought a camera that I still have. Two cameras, actually, that I still have. And at this time, my escape was the mountains. So I had some friends that are heavily involved in backcountry hiking, backcountry living, like the whole nine yards, some actual mountain men. And so before Brooke and I even moved to Hawaii, or before we moved to Kauai, we got heavily involved in that. 
And I was like, yeah, this is the life I want to live. We'd spend a week in the backcountry, living, you know, living out of a backpack in a little tent and fuck 30 miles in the backcountry in Montana. It was awesome. You know, doing psychedelic drugs in the middle of nowhere. And so like this is so when I got back home, that was my savior. That was that was my what I went and did is I didn't stay in home. I decided that this that was my escape of it all. And so I really escaped to really, I thought I was escaping, but it really allowed me to kind of come back to who I was itself. Because there's nothing more freeing and raw than being by your fucking self in the middle of nowhere. And your phone doesn't work. And you can't listen to music. And all you are is with, with nature and by yourself. I mean... I look at how much we distract ourselves already on our phones. I mean, imagine being in the middle of nowhere, being completely fucked up emotionally. And that's how I felt. So that was like my therapy. And so I had this idea. I remember telling my friends that have been doing this their entire lives. I said, I'm going to get a camera and I'm going to be, I'm going to find a way to somehow work with National Geographic or Animal Planet or Discovery Channel. (laughs) And this is a... I, do they even do the show anymore or was it just one no, season? No, one done. So how did you even know about it and how did you apply to it? Yeah, so just just to kind of piggyback off of that, my friends did the same thing you just did. They fucking laughed at me. They said, dude, you're fucking crazy. You ain't going to go work for these people. You're like, you've never ran a camera before. And I said, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, three months later, I got, a call, I got a call from Pilgrim Studio that runs the show. And thankfully, it was a good fr- friend of mine. At the time, we had never met in person, where we had developed an amazing relationship sh- through social media. His name was Sammy Listo. He's one of my be- one of my best friends now. He's a rapper, like. No, he's a country country artist. Country artist. Yep. So Sammy, just an exceptional, one of the most exceptional human beings that I've ever had the pleasure of, being, of having in my life. And him and I, he's from Montana, had same friends, but him and I never met. He moved to California before. But over a four-year time period through social media, him and I had created this amazing relationship. And we've obviously seen each other since, I mean, it was eight years ago, we become best friends. But uh, he, was, he was playing flag football in L.A. on an intramural team. One of his team members, I don't know if, I think I can say, I'm not going to say his name, he's a casting director for Pilgrim. So Pilgrim then casted Sammy. Sammy was the very first person to get interviewed for the show. They brought Sammy in person. They interviewed him and they go, yeah, man, you're great. Sammy's a good looking guy. He's incredibly articulate, perfect for TV, good body, the whole nine yards. But they didn't, he didn't really have a story. He didn't have a story that really was pulling to the audience that they really wanted. And I, I don't know what it was. And to this day, I thank him for it. it is they... He goes, well, I'm not the guy, but I got a friend who would be. They gave, he gave my number. Never met him before, and he didn't have to do that. Yep. And, and they, called, they called me, and uh, I remember talking to the first casting director. I went through the entire casting process. There was, I believe, 40,000 applicants. Um, but I knew from the moment I got the first call, I was in. It was divine. It was it was it was it was divine. It was I'd already put it in the ether. I'd already put it in my mind. Like I'd already got the cameras. I already said I was gonna do this. I already said that something was gonna come my way, and it happened. It came. It's my funny way. how you just talk shit into existence. Yeah, it, it does. 
But I've, I've truly believed it at my core. That was the difference. When, I, when you really break down the, the laws of dynamics, it wasn't or laws of attraction. It wasn't just me like thinking it, but it was me feeling it in the body. Thinking is one, but then feeling it in the body is the second. Like I, I was so certain. My, my friends were so uncertainly laughing at and certainly laughing at me at the time saying, fuck you. No, you know, no, 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 fuck my friends. I'm I said, I said, but I'm laughing because I'm like, all I know is this hard-headed Josh. Yeah. I kind of saw your Viva post or whatever, yeah. but I'm, I'm interested in you as a wrestler. I want all these Montana kids to do good. You know, I'm tracking right. all these right. big-time wrestlers just because I'm a sports guy. I'm like, cool, right. they're from fucking middle of nowhere. They're right. in Arizona State. They're here. They're there. It seemed like everyone had injuries and no one really worked out in collegiate sports, which is a bummer from like our close circle. Right. Um, but I then all of a sudden on Discovery, they posted the show. I'm like, this motherfucker, like, how does he go from here to here? So it's fun hearing yeah, this. Yeah. But I have a funny question just to yeah, yeah. roast you a little bit on yeah. the wheel. So, yeah, your friends are roasting you. You're, you're involved in it. Yeah. You, you beat 40,000 applicants. There's only how many on the show? Six. And how long did you, you give your quick rundown of the will. I don't want to, you know, spend an hour talking about the will, but yeah, yeah. this was a fucking crazy thing. Yeah, it was a crazy thing. Yeah, so I ended up going down to South America, um, had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> it was, it was a, at the Where time, at in South America? Uh, I was down in, uh, where I was at specifically. So it was six different locations spread out all through South America. So that's how they created the wheels. The top three locations like Brazil and the, like uh, Argentina was in the bottom. Um, so um, I was in Patagonia specifically, um, which is just like a huge land area in between Argentina or in Argentina, so southern South America essentially. And so that's where I went first. So I never made it actually to Brazil in the top location. So that's, that's what the, makes the wheel. You're by yourself. They throw you in the climate. You don't know how long you're going to be there. They give you an essential pack of things and they, they just throw you out there there's one camera guy you're not allowed to talk to him this is a real thing you're not allowed to talk to them and uh yeah you got to film yourself doing all all the shit and yeah you're really out there i was really starving really doing my thing uh they don't tell you and then all of a sudden they'll you'll get a little beeper thing you got to wake up literally in the middle of the night not knowing where you need to go and then you travel to your next destination having no idea how long it's gonna take you to get there you're only allowed to drink uh the water, they don't provide food or anything. You're not allowed to talk to anybody or anything like that, and they bring you to the next location. Why do you think there's only one season? Uh, it was a bust. Oh, okay. Uh, how long did you last? I lasted, I lasted almost three weeks. Oh, really? Damn. Yeah. yeah. I remember, like, you, I could noticeably tell, like, you were fucking, like, because you had an eight, right? Yeah, I, I went, I went uh, over 16 days with, with, with no food. Uh, that's wild. So the, the thing that I'm laughing at is because I'm watching it, right? Right. And uh, you have the net of some sort, uh, and you're trying to catch fish. I'm like, man, you're from my day. You didn't get a setup to catch the fucking fish. Yeah. And then, you know, it's easy as an outsider looking because everyone sure. else figured out a way to, like, round up and fucking gill yeah, net these fucking net. fish. I've never know? used a cast net yeah. in my life, dude. <laughs> And I'm like, Josh, dude, fucking build something here with some wood or something. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I could do it. Like, I'm yeah. not on the fucking. But it was funny because, like, obviously, I'm rooting for it. I'm like, God damn it! And yeah, you didn't get to keep going. But so yeah, so I had a, so I took that cast net, which normally is used like in like an ocean. So it's a big old net with weighted bottoms, and then you throw it out, and it, and it like spans. But I've never used a cast net in my entire life. I didn't and you only had a river, right? Yeah, I had no fucking clue what the fuck it was. So what I so what I did was I took uh, I cut up the cast net I I had a a stick a big long stick and then I, I made a fork in it 
and then I made my own net, my own my own net, and then I fucking set it in this part where all the fish were going, and then I was fucking throwing big huge rocks over to scare the fish down into my net, and I caught one. Yeah, it's the only fish I caught in the whole show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's basically because you like tapped out, right? Because you didn't have any food, I'm assuming. Yeah. So at the very so at the very end, well, the, the, there's one thing that the, the people is laughing at me for two things. First off is when uh, like the very first like five minutes of the show, I, my I'm talking about how I build I can build all these fucking awesome structures, <laughs> and then they got fucking clips of me. Of my structure just keeps falling down. Yeah. But they're cocksuckers because they don't, like, the actual structure that I made in that first deal was super legit. I mean, it was badass. Like, ended up being sick. But, dude, like, I was just so overwhelmed the first two hours of the show. It was 30, it was like 31 degrees outside. I'd already gotten my, I'd already gotten my fucking first pair of boots wet. So completely soaked in 31 degrees, dude. Like, that, like, dumbass. Yeah. And so I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed. My adrenaline's going. I'm trying to like film. Like, damn, this is a real thing. I didn't realize like I'm supposed to be out here for six. Fucking years. South America. Yeah. So this is crazy. And so, and then uh, the second thing is, is uh, they they have a video. I was getting the fishing thing. I was getting pissed. So I literally grabbed a rock and just threw it at the fucking water, like because I was pissed off. But they portrayed it as I was trying to throw rocks at fish. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't remember that. I, I I can't say I I don't know how much I can say or how long I'm tied to contracting yesterday. Like what complete behind the scenes of what is all happening. But let's just say that I mean I would hope that with people I just have I would have to laugh at, at things. But how they portray things through the shows. It's reality TV. It's fucking reality TV. <laughs> yeah. They, they they made it. They they wanted to make me look like a dumbass here and there. It was what it was. Well. The plumber ended up winning the show, I think. Yep. People went through some crazy shit on that show, especially that one fucking area where they're like fishing in like the swamp and like yep. I don't know what kind of fucking shit can be in there, but I was like, damn, that I cannot last in that fucking place. Uh, but I would like to know because I watch alone. I'm sure a lot of people love shit like that. I think it's a cool show. They're up in Vancouver Island, right, living off the land. Um, I go to Lopez Island a lot, which is the San Juans, and there's people that live off the land there, and a lot of people that win are from there. So it's kind of a cool thing, but, you know, Montana boys seem to do that. Like, that's a big fucking deal. What were some of your favorite things and learning experiences from that? Because that's some crazy shit. The biggest thing was I'd never been out of the country, and I was in a point in my relationship at the time that was rocky, and a point in my life that was rocky. And so the show became less about this allure of me being a TV star and more, more about the spiritual journey. Heading into it, I thought that I could starve myself for 30 or to 40 days. Uh, I know people, and I potentially may do, a, I, I may do like a 30-day fast, a 30-day water fast here in the next year. It's something I've been wanting to do. Um, but a lot of religions do it, a lot of, and a lot of but you're not in a survival situation yep, yep. and you can take a fucking shower and sleep in a bed and yep. you know so you're not in a survival situation so once i started to really be malnourished and the pounds started to come off my favorite experiences about the show was the, the spiritual side of things to really get me back to the layers once again of of being alone with no fucking food freezing your ass off 
and now you have no escape to reality. You have no, you have no escape of your current reality. You have no, you have, you can't even eat. You can't even go lay in your bed. You can't watch TV. You can't read a magazine and you can't be on your phone. What are you going to do now with your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions? You're going to fucking sit in them. And so like, to me, it became this big yoga practice essentially of, of allowing, this was the very, my very first introduction of the mind body connection and understanding the mechanism of letting go. Now I didn't understand how to let go, but this was my first introduction of the mind body connection to the unresolved feelings that have shaped my reality. And this is when a lot of shit from my fucking childhood started to come up, dude. Like man, you're thinking all kinds of shit. Oh man. my god, man! The relationship with my mom and my <laughs> my relationship with my dad and people, man. Like it was heavy, heavy, heavy. And there was no drugs involved. But if you starve, if you starve the body, then you can ascend consciousness, and that's exactly <laughs> what happened. So that's probably my favorite thing about it all was the survival aspect and things, and the experience was cool. It was cool being part of the the different countries and places that we traveled to and being part of the production and doing the thing. And that was cool. And, you know, and honestly, like the, if I wasn't even on TV, it would have been fine. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, you were the youngest one, right? I was the youngest one. Yep. How old were you at this time again? 23. So you've gone through fucking a lots of different experiences <laughs> here at this point at a young age, probably more so than most. Um, you know, I remember just the discovery channel. I'm like, how the fuck did he do this? First of all, I'm like, why is he want to do this? Some crazy shit, right? You see like usually very well trained adverse people that are like life, you know, skills right. been doing that for a long time that go on those shows. So that was awesome to see, but you know, we'll get to your next steps and all the entrepreneurship stuff, the fun stuff that you're doing now. But what kind of lessons and building blocks are, did you get from all this to your life today? And do you think you'd be anywhere successful with your businesses and what you've done without those experiences? Or do you think you could have figured it out? I can't say one way or the other because I've only experienced it one way. So you can't predict the, predict, the unpredicted. And um, all I know is, is that everything that I've experienced is absolutely 100% tied into who I am now. What I really look back and tie my entire life in through a young age of competing at a high level to then college to all of the, everything that happened with my back and that I went through with my back, then going into the network marketing realm and being introduced to that, falling in love and moving and living from couch to couch, completely stripping myself of ego, growing my hair out, being a dirty hippie, having drug addiction and illicit drug use to going on the discovery channel. I mean, all this happened in a very short amount of time is I really think that it was exactly what was required in my life. But I always tell people, I feel that I'm at where I'm at because I really allowed myself to go experience life. I knew and I, I knew from a young age, I, I would drive, I would remember driving in a car and just in, like, having these visions in my head about life and knowing that this wasn't what I, what, this wasn't what I was destined for. And I had these big dreams. And I remember the moment that the whole situation with the wrestling, as I said, you know what, I'm going to live my life day to day and I'm going to allow my, myself to do everything that I want to do. And if I always, always felt in my life that if you want to do something, no matter what it is, that if it's important enough to you, you'll find a way. And I found a way to live like that. 
being broke. I didn't at this time for years. I wasn't really making a whole lot of money, but I was. I found ways. I did side end jobs. I did all sorts. Of, I mean, I sold drugs. I mean, I, I did whatever it took to live like that. I floated from couches to couches, and so when I look back on it, is like man, to be able to get me to where I am now, I was introduced to business early, introduced to mindset, the skills, the method, and the system, the repetition early. But I almost completely lost all of that in terms of like my day to day. And I went on like a spiritual journey. That spiritual journey turned into a drug addiction. And then that turned into codependent. I mean, all this is. And then, I, and then all of a sudden, at 25 years old, it all came around. I hit rock bottom once again. So I always felt my life was in a, my life was like a fishing bobber. Half above water, half below water. The above water was who I was, the public's eye. It was my social media presence, who I was to my, my family, some of my friends, the friends that really knew me, knew what was going on, who I was to the public's eye and my identity. Below water, I was drowning. I was drowning in my own self-pity, my own rejection, my abandonment, my low levels of esteem, my own trauma that had been unresolved as a child, and my addiction. That's what represents my addiction was below the water. I was drowning. 25 years old, I decided that enough was enough. The pleasure was no longer worth the pain. After, after a night of illicit drug use, close overdose, I decided the next day that I went clean, went, got cold and sober, uh, clean and sober, April 1st, 2019, so almost three years ago. Now, with, through this phase, did you ever reach out to your parents for advice? Did you want to, did you actually, were you transparent with them to what was going on? Or were you like, I'm my own man, I'm figuring it out and kind of held it to yourself? Yeah, that, I don't even think, I think in some aspects, my dad still in some denial of it, which is what it is. That's his story, not mine. Uh, there's, he doesn't know details and it's not required for me. I've never reached out to my parents about it. It was a silent thing that was going on that was happening because when you're an addict, you live in a lot of shame and guilt. So you're shameful. And so I remember being a chameleon. That's how I look at my life. And I was a, I was a chronic habitual liar. And you become a liar because you got to be, you got to have a different face and a different mask for everybody that you see. So I'd be somebody, if I had done this interview then, I'd be somebody else. I would have been who you wanted me to be on that camera, who was going to be the people. Then if I got in front of my parents, I'd be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And if I was in front of a girl, I would seduce her into believing I was whoever she wanted me to believe. But I had no fucking clue who I was. I'd lost myself amongst that, you know, during that time. So I, I lived in a lot of this shame. And my biggest fear in life was being in a room of all the people who I'd lied and seduced to and believing in who I was and having them all be in the same room. Because who was I going to be? What mask was I going to put on? Mm -hmm. And so I never, I never reached out to parents, family members, or any of that, of that during this time because I was ashamed. Yeah, I know being a young adult, I didn't go through those extremes by any means, but... Um... It's weird how you just hold everything together and you like, like for me, it was always, I don't want to fail. I got to figure it out. And I just held it and I, you know, I found my way through it. Thank God. But it's just weird how as a young adult that, that we do that, right? We just wear these masks. We do these things and we want people to have this judgment of us, but then we're holding and we don't know anything. Like really we're trying to figure it out. Maybe that's life and we need to go through that. But I think it's just so interesting how as young adults we do that. And it's just like, why do we do that? It's like, we're just afraid, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, but that's that's thanks for opening up and telling us yeah, about absolutely. that. So what my curiosity is, if we look at traits or building blocks from those days, what do you think are the three best traits or building blocks that you've gotten from all that that has this version of Josh today? 
I feel number number one is non-attachment and fearlessness. That the risk versus reward system in life is what it is, and I really so that I would have to say really letting go of the dualities of life, win and lose. I don't live in win and lose. No right or wrong, win and lose. I don't live in a polarized life anymore, and that's where I'd say number one, losing polarization. I don't live in win or lose. I live in win-win situations. The situation is what it is. So that that specifically learning that that specifically is tied into my ability to really navigate myself in an objective manner that's emotionally neutral, that's allowed me to take things in business as they are, not overwhelm myself, over-obligate myself, become unorganized, just really be in the moment and have clarity and purpose. So that I think that would be my the number one, is really beginning to step out of non-attachment and really having these polarizations where it's like, I had bad days. I don't have bad days. My days are what they are. I don't have bad days. I have seldom relapses, but my relapses are, are minimal. I think, the second, I think the second thing, or I feel the second thing would be ability to self, be self-aware and self-regulate. Self-awareness is, is being taught on a big macro right now by many people, but I don't believe, I, I think a lot of people really don't go into the inner workings of their life. Self-awareness for me is really beginning to understand why you do what you do Breaking down the events that have shaped the feelings, the low levels of esteem, understanding the trauma, understanding the events that, you, that happened when you were a child, this chronological order of things that have led to how you feel that continually have you perpetuating the same people, places, and situations that validate your anxiety, your unresolved feelings, and your low levels of esteem over and over and over again as an adult. So I feel that that's number two, really understanding, really being self-aware and having the ability to self-regulate to letting go, to understanding the events that have shaped the feelings. And I think the third, I think, and I feel the third thing specifically is, is being, is, is, is being just self. It's not having to be the man anymore. Is, and that I think that a lot of people, when you go to, when you're in business, sports, is, I'm not here to be the man anymore. And I'm not comparing my journey to anybody. I am where I'm at. And I've accepted that. And I, and I don't say, well, I should be here, or I could be here. If I would have done this, I would have been there. No, nah, man, I'm, I'm where I'm at because of the choices that I've made. And I think that taking utter complete responsibility for, your at, for where you're at, regardless of where, if you think that you should be or you shouldn't be, it's where you're meant to be. And if you're meant to be here, accepting where you're at, and then being, being able to understand, okay, this is what's got me here. So what are the simple daily disciplines? What's the simple infrastructure, the plan, the map of action? And the commitment that I must make one day at a time to really navigate myself to this arbitrary place that's called the future. But what can I do daily to produce these results on the daily? So I really feel it's really taking yourself out of this comparison. Just being your best self instead of being the man or the woman. Because the man or the woman that seeks validation through accomplishments, recognition, through the wards, the, the things in the blings, the shiny thing object syndrome, where you gotta walk the stage, or you have to be acknowledged at your company company event for being the best. That's so fucking overrated. I don't wanna be the man anymore. I wanna live in my humility and my brilliance while being able to connect with people and create income that I deserve to create. Well said. So now we do another 180. You go sober, and this is in Montana? Uh, no, actually, I, I got sober in Arizona. Okay. Arizona before all the Montana stuff. No, after it all. Okay, so, so you went back to Arizona. Yeah, so 
after I moved after I moved back from Kauai, I went on the show. After the show, I was pretty lost again. Once again, I got another phone call from Val Rouser. <laughs> motherfucker, dude. Val, Val, Val is in. Val is in. Um, you know, I think you might be a little out of frame. I don't know if you can see. Uh, you good there? No, I'm good, man. Val, Val is in. Uh, we just need you in there, dude. Oh, no, I'm perfect. just here, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Val is in Bozeman, Montana, coaching wrestling again. Same shit. Come coach wrestling. At this time. Uh, no, club. Club. No, club team. Big club team. Successful. Um, I said, sure, let's do it. At the time, I was just about to launch Field Supplements. So Field hadn't even launched yet. And I needed to get away out of Great Falls so I could be an addict somewhere else, not my house. Moved to Bozeman. Perfect place for all that to work out. Coach wrestling in Bozeman. And uh, we launched 1010 uh, of 17 Field Supplements. Where's that idea? Is that all you? You finally started to work with your dad, like, yo, dude, let me get in on some of this, or what? It actually came when I was on the TV show. Yeah, I, I, I'll have to show you. There's a big notebook. So that was one thing that I'm just grateful they allowed me to have, is every day I wrote, and I just wrote, I wrote like 100-some pages. Just That's wrote, crazy. wrote and wrote and wrote. One of the ideas was start a supplement company and call it Fueled Supplements. It was in the book. So I didn't even know you started that by yourself. I thought this was your dad and your venture from way back in the day nope so my dad is in, my dad's been involved with a few a few different companies since or before actually and he recently had a big falling out with a company not of his own in doing but just some very bad management and he ultimately was burnt out i at the time when i came back from the tv show i had to have something like required like fuck dude like how long, much longer can I, can I do this, you know? And, and so it was great. Um, I made enough money that one year to support me for two years financially. So that was awesome. And then, okay, well then what? You know, I'm fucking 25 years, 20, 24 years old at this time. So what's next for me? 23, 24. And so I said, well, I better at least like do something. <laughs> you know, so I said, okay, let's start fueled supplements. So I reached out to him and said, let's private label this line ourselves. And so we went in about a six to eight month time period, and then we launched with six products. What were the OGs? The OGs, Gut Check, we, uh, Gut Check, which is no longer in line. I actually have the last two bottles here, my favorite fucking product for a whole line. Uh, we Why had, is it no longer then? It just wasn't popular. Okay. And not, not popular. Um, we had a pre-workout called Overtime. We had a recovery product called Reversal. We still have. We had a fat burner called Showtime, and we had a uh, essential, then it was only branched chain amino acid since it's been changed to essential amino acid uh, mixture called Comeback. So that was our staple. Okay. So you guys got this going. You're, you moved back to Arizona. Yeah, so during this time, I coached, I was in, in Bozeman for one year. Uh, I knew Bozeman was a bad place for me. And, uh, was the did Val keep wrestling there? Or did he bounce off that too? So, so Val kept coaching there for a little while. I just remember telling Val that I don't know what it is, but I have to move to Arizona, <laughs> and I got to get my life together. And I said I'm going to move to Arizona. I'm going to change my life. And he just said okay. And I moved. Ended up moving to Arizona. How did you just move to Arizona? Did you have money? Did you just drive, figure it out? Like, 
Yeah, man, at the time, I was selling drugs, to be honest with you. Yeah, so um, that's how I paid for most of it. And Get an apartment, a studio. Yeah, I, I, moved in, I moved in for the first four weeks with one of my friends' brother. And that was a very interesting situation. And then uh, him and I ended up, my friend's, my friend, who, the brother that I was living with, him and I actually ended up getting our own spot four weeks later at two bedroom, two bedroom apartment in Scottsdale. So in that time, then in Scottsdale, come yeah, on, yeah. you're in Scottsdale. Yeah, North Scottsdale is awesome, man. It's cheap place actually. Yeah, you know, like rent wasn't too bad. I think it was like seven hundred bucks a month. Damn. You know, it was like fourteen hundred for the place. You know, it's not so not bad at all. And at the time, Fueled was barely making any money. I think we were doing like, I, if you know, a couple thousand dollars a month gross. So did you do more jobs at the time? Did you like I gotta just keep grinding with this? Yeah, I just kept grinding, man. Yeah, I didn't do any, I didn't, I didn't pick up any more jobs. Um, I had I had enough money, and I just remember I had I had a month. It was a make or break month. It was it was either I make some fucking money or I get a job, and I made it. I made it happen. There you go. Yeah, so I made it happen. When your back's against the wall. It's yeah. a weird way to make it, it happen, yeah, right? I guess so, man. So, yeah, we lived in an apartment. Um, the entire place was decked out and packed full of products and supplements. I did all the shipping, everything from my apartment right there. And that was the beginning of it all, yeah. And how long were you in Arizona? Shit, almost three years. And how long ago has it been since you left? Only a year. Okay, and then you came here? Yep. So what made you come here? Yeah, so initially why I came here was I was supposed to put fueled into a wrestling training facility and three days before I moved here they changed their offer so I never moved here oh sorry sorry I never moved my business in there so what all have you got going since we got Vegas you got you I, I see more in the know yep a podcast you got field supplements still going uh you do life coaching yep what else you got going on I, I work with another network marketing company now like really under the radar called Melo Luca it's an awesome, phenomenal company, so, and uh, it's, it absolutely lines with my values of what I want, and the products are absolutely amazing. Completely different time in my life to be in the network marketing realm, as well as my approach to the network marketing uh, industry, and so it's been refreshing to be part of that. I pretty much do that like completely under the rug. Not many even people know that, um, which is better for me. I have an oversaturated markets and things, and I'm not a fucking salesman in the business. I also work with a vitality clinic based out of Scottsdale called Prime Body. We're a HRT clinic for men and women, hormonal replacement therapy clinic for men and women that prescribes hormonal replacement. Uh, we are the largest vitality clinic in all the United States, have over 100 qualified uh, physicians that do it all telemedicine, all from the comfort of your home. And then uh, I, on the side of all of that, uh, I'm starting another little sub-brand called Cauliflower Coalition, which potentially will be a uh, NF NFT collection of MMA and wrestling um, characters. With Cauliflower. With huge Cauliflower, <laughs> yeah. I have a film that'll do really well. Yep. <laughs> and, and so we'll see where, that, where all that goes. And then I've really, really have gotten into the, a few different things in the, the, the cold and heat therapy uh, market space behind the scenes that I have some really cool things I'm working on as well. So a lot of people think of being a business owner. So we will we'll use fuel. That's the heart of your entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. You've done network marketing, which kind of is running your own business within a, a business. 
Um, but fueled has been the, the, the main thing. So we'll say that's your first entrepreneurship experience. Now you're doing all these things. You know, when I look at it, you know, business buckets, my one business, it's a lot of time. I have a full-time job. You don't. So maybe not having a full-time job outside of fuel gets you all the time, but how are you able to do all that? What's the drive to do all these things and why really? It goes back to what I had said earlier, a, me- a plan, a method, and a system. And if you have a plan, a method, and a system, you won't be overwhelmed. I think many people live in an overwhelmed state regardless. And if you can minimize the overwhelm and being unorganized and as well as letting go of procrastination, you can really step into production. My life's about production one day at a time. And that's all I'm focused on is production one day at a time. I don't, I have goals, dreams, and aspirations, but I'm about here right now. One day at a time, that's through my sobriety and my recovery, and that's how I approach business. Is I'm, not, I'm not a millionaire yet, but I am, I am going to deploy millionaire principles every single day, characteristics, skill sets every single day, and that, that's going to compound, a compounding effect. So really navigating and having so many different irons in the fire, I have found myself in many ways. I'm never, I'm never overwhelmed. But sometimes when I am putting effort in one area, I can see a direct reflection in other areas specifically, which is okay in times. So there, there's moments where I'm building something that's longer term. I'm building different assets and avenues of, of income and that is more of a residual. Network marketing is something I'm going to build that's that, that leveraged residual. Fueled is direct to consumer. I have to be there. I have to show up. It's something that's in person. Like it's, it's a product. It's got heavy, large, large overhead and a lot of responsibility. It's not a recession proof business. I learned that when the pandemic came around, that's not recession proof. That's what really helped me assist and assisted me in developing my skill set and my addiction, success coaching and mentorship is that I'm only, I'm getting paid for my time and my value that I bring to the marketplace. Once again, personal development with a payment plan. This is where it all came together is my coaching. I've mentored with Jeffrey Combs, who has close to 70,000 coaching hours. He's coached 15,000 clients and made 60 plus million dollars in his career. I'm a disciple of him, his coaching method, and his system. That's why I learned how to coach through was Jeff. I got in the coaching because I understood that success in addiction coaching is recession proof. The product is me and it's my time. So that's a leveraged income that I can really leverage my own time, my skill set, my energy without having a lot of overhead. So that's another addition. Then there's other, there's other aspects with more than no with the podcasting. The podcasting is something that's not paying me directly, but it's only adding value to the market space that I'm in. So when I'm on my podcast, it's not paying me and there's a lot of time and money and, and time and effort and things I could probably go get a fucking job and make more money than I'm podcasting. But to me, it's about building the picture, creating and generating value in as many aspects as I can. So I look at podcasting as just another piece of the puzzle. Will podcasting ever pay me full time? Probably not. But but has podcasting assisted me in spreading a wealth of information, my message and attracting new clients? 100%. And it's not, that's not my purpose behind it though. I'm not, it's not because I'm doing this to get this. I'm doing this to add as much value as I potentially can to the market space. And the, the market will pay me what I bring to it, which is my value. 
when it comes to all these other things with the Call Fire Coalition, one thing that I can say is, is that I have many friends that have been involved in cryptocurrency. I was first introduced in 2011. 2011, or sorry, 2012. In 2012, Bitcoin was like $54. I have friends, not friends now, but I have colleagues now. They're my friends, my colleagues that I've known since then introduced me that have tens of millions of dollars in crypto. Being a city small town boy from Montana, not knowing what the fuck any of that <laughs> meant. Crypto, I had no idea was. But now understanding maybe i still don't even understand blockchain i don't understand the whole mining systems and these other different things and it's something that i'm really fresh with what i do know is is i have a skill set i have a build i have a ability to attract people connect with people communicate create a culture and value to the market space and now i'm going to leverage and i've been leveraging people that are already part of what they're, they're the experts and now i'm just picking their minds within that field because one thing that I can say is in many things in my life is I've been since 19 or 20, especially being around the people that I've been around, is I've been around some big money makers if I would have been able to actually understand and articulate what value that would have been 10 years after. Now it's really taking my understanding of, of the market space, of the different platforms, and being able to predict the future through the predictability that's already been laid before us and really just following and navigating this realm of saying, hey, this is what's going to happen here in five years, in 10 years. This is where things are going. This is the scale of that. So where do I want to position myself amongst this wave? I don't, I don't want to be part of the pioneer wave because that's the fuck up wave. That's where you join in and the, the, the failure rate's high. The risk is way higher than the reward and very few reward. I feel in some of these different aspects of crypto and things, there's still a wave to be, to be had. It's going that direction, especially when it comes to NFTs, the whole metaverse and things, is I, don't, I am not going to allow my skill set and understanding of what's happening stop, prevent me once again from catching that wave. Because if I could go back and change things, I obviously would have bought a couple thousand dollars worth of crypto and I'd be a, a multi-millionaire now. But I don't live in the could have been, should have been, but what I live in is the now. And what I know now is that these things are happening. It's a reality. And if you don't completely understand them, find somebody that does and be able to navigate yourself in a way, maybe it's not going to make me millions, but if it can make me thousands, tens of thousands, it's just another way to really begin to la leverage your assets and your abilities without having to be fucking hands-on, grinding it out nine, ten hours a day. Mm -hmm. So with this, what would you say is your backbone within your entrepreneurship? Is it fueled supplements? You know, is that the goal to just keep, you know, building that into passive and using these other things to build this brand and have more streams of revenue? Like with all this happening, what is kind of the goal there? Field will, field will continue to be what it is for as long as it potentially can. Um, all I, all I do know is with supply chain shortages, the infrastructure of, of the, the, the economics right now of the world, the economy, money, trade, all that, we have seen inflation with products up to 50% per unit. So in a very competitive market space already, now you add a 
less margin on pretty much everything you do, and you also got to increase your, got to increase your uh, prices as well. So fuel will always be what field is, and I don't want field to be a twenty million dollar year company, um, but field a field can grow within its respected value. I truly believe we do offer some of the best products on the market. And, and that's coming from a very unbiased situation. My dad's been in the industry for 30 years. He sells hundreds of different products at his facility and a store in his retail location in Montana. And you look at the market, we're in the top 1% in terms of formulation, not in money, but in terms of formulation and products. So we're gonna continually drive the value within our formulation. So is this a true partnership with you and your dad now? Yeah. Yeah. Does he still have other supplements or is this a... So he, he has a brick and mortar location that he sells completely separate of fuel, but fuel's okay. in, in his same okay. facility. So I'm going to continually build field. Um, the one thing that I can see moving forward, especially in the market space that we're in today, is as I've really seen the importance of having a recession-proof business. And this is something I teach many young entrepreneurs is when you're having multiple streams of income is what can what what is going to be around forever or for most of the time and for me that's my addiction and success coaching and this is like really the first year that I've really tapped into that and I really feel I feel I have I have the ability to generate more than what I'm doing with field easily I'm already doing that honestly and is this something that's come from Jeffrey as a mentor this was all internal development and ideas so so it's yes yeah, a little bit of both um, I knew that I, want, I felt that I had the ability to be a coach, but I didn't really have the skill set or the consciousness to do it. Working with Jeff has really assisted me in better understanding my own inner workings, the letting go process, the mind-body connection, separating events that shaped feelings, and understanding esteem, trauma, everything that's going to be valued in a coaching perspective in terms of success addiction and consciousness coaching jeff has then assisted me in really putting all of that together a lot of it is natural ability and it's really something that like jeff never was taught it's a method and a system but it's it's not even a method and a system it's not like you do a b c or d and then this is what happens when i coach is completely off gut and instinct it's off of feel and it's really off of me under understanding patterns I'm very good at understanding patterns in 20 minutes or less of me being able to coach with somebody I can fairly write out their life what's happened what they've gone through if a woman if a woman has had been sexually assaulted has had a father if, if, if people have been traumatized as a child bullied I can pick these out because people have tells and people operate in patterns the first time I witnessed something like that was Tony Robbins, right? Yeah, His Netflix, right. and you see that, and he has the in-person stuff my friends have done. But even just watching him do it, I feel like I have a skill into doing that now, right. now that you can kind of tap into that, right. right? And even doing these podcasts, I'm hearing people's life stories, and it's cool that you can like catch those patterns, like, oh, this is probably where they're going, or they're right. going to elaborate on that. Right. It's really cool to see. So, Absolutely, man. People operate in patterns. People are patterns. And so you start to break down the patterns, and... It's really with there's probably like less than 10 different patterns that you can begin to see people operate in We're living in the fucking matrix man, you know, and so I mean like literally uh, like It's it's so wild to be able to I mean Jeff Jeff is the master of it 
I mean, he, with the master, that's one thing that is great about Jeff is when you are the master and you're, and then you're the student, the student can take 30 years of what it took the master and do it in three minutes, mm -hmm. three, you know, three hours, three days, three years. I mean, and that's, that's what has happened with Jeff and I is essentially is I've been able to really ascend this level of consciousness and tap into this into it. It's really intuitive. And then ultimately when it's all said and done, it's my ability to ask questions and my ability to specifically ask questions in a series to get to a desired result. As a coach, when people hire me as a coach, I think it gets, I think that's the biggest thing that gets twisted. I'm not here to tell anybody what they're, what they should do. I'm not saying, Hey pal, you need, you need to go do this. I'm not here to direct anybody. My purpose as a coach is to assist you in navigating your own self into self-realization of what you feel is best. I can only give suggestions and that's all I do is give suggestions on things, but I'm never, I've never said you need to, mm -hmm. it's never a word I use or you require to. I say, I suggest, this is what I suggest, but, I'm, but it's a very, the conversations are 80, 20, 80% them. I want them speaking 20% me asking questions and helping them navigate. Now you have your websites for this. You have your social medias, you have your field supplements. I'm sure with network marketing, there's gotta be some sort of there. You know, that, a lot of that takes time and money. So is this all things that you've been able to use with Phil to su supplement these other businesses? Is it something that you've had to, like, because I bring this up because when everyone thinks I have to run a business, I have to have all this money, I have to have a business loan, like, I'm not in the right place and time to do it when re reality is, you know, that's not the case. So I'm curious, for your point of view, is that something that, you know, you invested in field supplements to be able to fund this? Or did you just figure it out? Did you have to take a big loan? Like, what did that look like? So with our supplements, we, we had to take a, a fairly large uh, loan um, that was on my dad's end to initially start it up um, to simply purchase the product. Um, other than fuel out of all the different businesses has the greatest overhead for sure and absolutely um, because of the minimum quantities and ordering and things. I mean, it's a large sums of money at that time. Um, initially, I didn't have the startup funds to do that. Um, uh, two years after that, I ended up taking out a $30,000 loan um, that my dad wanted me to have some skin in the game. I paid that loan off in 12 months. Um, so um, then from, from there, every single dollar essentially that I've generated and created through field, I've saved. And I don't- And I, did you use that for the other things, for the websites, yep, all that yep, stuff? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Just used, used all of that to generate that. And then through my coaching business, man, I mean, it's probably the most profitable in terms of the here and now of anything. I get paid more in my coaching than I do for supplements. Um, and there's no product overhead. My overhead's my time. So I'm able to generate 5000 to $10,000 months fairly easily based on, a, based on no overhead. You know, I, I generate $10,000 a month in field and I'm really only taking around four grand. You know? Yep. You know, I generate ten thousand dollars a month in my coaching. I'm taking home ten grand. Yep. But I'm coaching, obviously, my time. Mm -hmm. In my time, my that time is essentially the value that I'm bringing. But there's no actual like overhead. So that's what's really got me really involved in the coaching aspect. Is now like I'm honestly using my coaching a lot to feel a lot of to to yeah. to spread into all these other different platforms that I got going on. Okay. 
first off, appreciate your time. This has been awesome for hosting me, for being the one sponsor of Fueled Supplements. You know, the reason that I had reached out to Josh and Fueled Supplements was I wanted to have a sponsor. I didn't want to be a podcast that didn't have a sponsor, but I wanted to do something that was close to where I come from, that shows work ethic, that shows like that embodiment that I'm trying to do with Businesses Buckets. For my short amount of time, I want to prove that I'm consistent. I have a good production. I take it seriously. Then I could go to the next stage and actually try to get sponsorships, actually try to make revenue. But for me, it's showing that I can do it. I got to learn. There's technical difficulties. There's new equipment, fucking new software. You know, I was on point with that in college, but I had to learn it all over again because 10 years later, shit's changed, right? Um, so I really appreciate you doing that. And I, I think that that's super cool that we've been able to do that. And we didn't really know each other, right? Yeah. It's just kind of... I gave my best sales pitch of an interview. I have lots of sales experience, probably my best trait. Um, I'm assuming some of that was what caught your eye and, you know, it definitely couldn't have. And I, I just want to say thanks first. Well I, well, I really appreciate it and you're welcome. And absolutely, yeah, Shane, I mean, it was, you know, initially it was something that I just, I, I liked you as a person. I wanted to give you a shot. And, you know, obviously our sponsorship hasn't been huge. And, but we do, we do appreciate it. And the biggest thing that I was just talking to Evan about is that I said the one thing is is that he's consistent and in anything in life is if you look at consistency comp the compounding effect over time is what's going to create the results so if i can say anything about this podcast and about yourself and about what you're doing is your consistency and that that ultimately is what keeps me wanting to be around assisting you and helping you out and saying hey man like this dude's fucking consistent you know because you're not going to go, there's very few people that have massive platforms. I, I you know, I have a 30,000 following over my platforms and my podcast does 50 to hundred views sometimes, you know, so it's not that big and I have a big platform, but it's like generating funneling people into YouTube and doing, it's a big process and I'm not a social influence. I am, but I'm not, you know what I'm saying? So Seeing what you've done with this podcast, it's it's over. Because how long have you started now? Uh, it'll be a year in January. Say so for the last year to really be seeing you and watching you, it's really been awesome to see the consistency. And I told I told Evan, I said I tune in quite frequently, especially when it comes in comes to the UFC picks. And that's why I do the chapters, right? Because yeah. you probably don't care about NFL. Yeah, I never watch those Honestly, I have no fucking clue. Yeah. You're speaking gibberish when you're yeah. talking about the NBA. I'm like, I have no idea who these people are. But I was, really, I always respect that. And that's what's cool about this business and buckets idea that you have is that it really offers a variety, variety for people, business and buckets, sports, and business. I mean, what the fuck else is it really? And uh, that's pretty much it. And it, there's so much tie into that, right? right. Sports and business. If you're an athlete, you're running your own business, really, right. at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and that's Nowadays. what, those are the two most interesting things to me and the most knowledgeable things that I have. So it's like, perfect, business and buckets. Baby. Yeah, I love it. Well, I really appreciate it and, and definitely want to continue in, the, continue in the future and really assist you as much as I can to, to really get some, people on, get some people on here and really connect you with some of, some of the people that are in my network. I know you really love the fighting, so... Yeah, I mean, everyone's got a good story. I think yeah. people can learn from the stories. That's how, to be honest, as an only child in the middle of nowhere, the only reason I have the skills that I have is learning and hearing and what they went through. Okay, well, I don't want to do that or right. I can do this. And I think it was cool to have such a transparent story. People are going to love it. Now, quickly, I do want to do some rapid fire questions, some basic questions. But do you have anything else that you want to touch on that you're like, I feel like the people need to hear this or this this is awesome? Or did we hit, we, we hit, we I hit think, well? I think we've, we've, we've really hit it. Yeah. I'll answer what you got here at the end. 
All right, so you probably already told us this, but maybe there's something different. Um, tell us about one of your deepest and darkest times that you've had to push through. Or maybe you can just pinpoint what, what it was out of that experience. Yeah, so I have to say the de my deepest and darkest times was, I mean, <sighs> take a deep breath there. Yeah. <laughs> my deepest and darkest time, I'd have to say, would, would be the moments leading up to me getting sober. I think that the whole situation, or both aspects, I, I take that back. I think I think it's not. I don't think it was the end of my sobriety. I think it was the beginning of my full-blown addiction. Was the darkest that I, that I was, and I think that that had a lot to do with my, the, my back, my back situation, the four back surgeries, the pain, it, it, the, the, not only the mental strain, but the, the physical pain that I felt for, for so many years. I really do have empathy for people who have back pain. But now I'm in a much different mindset of, of what you what can what can ha you can fucking fix it, and I just where I lived in it, man. That amount of back pain that I had, I mean, barely being able to tie your shoes and having shooting pain on both legs to down to your feet, and having trouble going to the bathroom and putting on your underwear at 19 years old was a I mean, it's not the end of the world. I know I don't ever compare my story to others. I know people are going through some shit. But, uh, yeah, fucking back pain is no joke. That, I think that was really the start of it all. On the other end, who do you want to shout out for being your biggest inspiration and motivator? My biggest inspiration and motivator? I think it's source energy. I mean, I think I feel, I mean, God, you call it God. But I mean, I'd say besides my, besides my family, I think everybody, you know, Everybody goes to the family. I think one the one person I'd have to say that knows the most about me, that I that almost knows everything about me. I mean, completely transparent is is my my mentor and good friend Jeffrey Combs. I hired him when I was 20 years old, so I had a, I had this level of consciousness of, of presented to me at 20, and then I went and became an addict for five years, and then came back to his content at 25, and then have been coaching with him for the last three years. Uh, Jeff unequivocally has been one of the greatest assets, a second father to me. Uh, I know he doesn't want a child or doesn't want a son, but he's been a, a mentor and a friend and a father figure to me in many ways. And he's, he's absolutely somebody that I have uh, complete and utter respect and love for. Shout out Jeff. They go Jeffrey Combs. Um, he's got one of his books right here, actually. What's the book? So I think it's on the other other side here. Let's see if I can grab it. He's got he's got seven different books, but uh, I just these are some Christmas presents. If you want one, I'll give one give you one to you, give one to you before you leave. I mean, I'll yeah. not say no. This one's more more heart than talent here. Uh, one of the first the very first book I ever read to him read from him, and this is the Breakthrough Factor. This is one of his newer books, and I just actually started re reading this uh, about about 60, 70 pages in. Yeah, that's what's up. Books are the best. Uh, they always say you should have a bigger bookshelf than your TV. I have an 82 inch flat screen, so I'm, I'm a little behind. <laughs> yeah. But uh, maybe I'll step my game right. up. Right. I pay for Barnes and Noble membership. Yeah, and, right. You know, I don't buy enough books. But um, if you could simply give a life tip or hack to the audience, what would it be? Life tick or life tick. <laughs> don't get any ticks. Yeah. A life tip or hack. Whew. Hack to the audience. Don't worry about money. Do it. Go. Go with your heart. 
Listen to the tune of your heart. Money will money will flow and prosperity will grow when you're completely aligned with what you're supposed to be doing. Couldn't say it better myself. Throughout your young adult life, what has been your most humbling moment and also your highest of highs? It's my hope, most humbling moment. I, I'll, I'm like a broken record having to go back to going from a Division One wrestler to four back surgeries in nine weeks. And the, the moment of humility, my greatest moment of humility was, was, was the night before April 1st. 2019, completely coming and surrender, surrendering myself to my addiction to God and making the decision that I was going to be clean and sober. That's ultimately, then. that's the biggest moment of humility in my entire life. I stepped out of denial and into acceptance and was no longer shameful and completely surrendered myself. Um, so that's probably the, the, the lowest and the highest, honestly, right there. Uh, highest, oh, that is the lowest and the highest. Yep. Okay. Um, this is huge. So you've started this entrepreneurship basically throughout COVID. So I always like to ask people, how are you able to you know, continue pushing forward, being successful? So I guess I'll kind of put a spin on the entrepreneurship side of it. How are you able to continually to keep these things going, keep progressing through, you know, our, lot, our generation's been through some shit. I mean, there's always been a talk of like a pandemic and shit and you never think and here we fucking are. And now we're almost in Ready Player One, the metaverse, NFT, shit's going crazy. How are you able to keep everything rooted? How are you able to keep that vision and keep that work ethic going? I don't buy into the, I don't buy into the mainstream political structure of what's going on in the world. I've allowed myself to see behind the veil, educate myself and navigate myself on the, on the, plans, that are, the plans that are happening behind the veil. That's not being presented through mainstream media. And that's really allowed me then to navigate the moves in my own life. And understanding that I do not have to be shameful to be in abundance and prosperity amongst tough times. And I think that that's something that, that many young entrepreneurs or people is that I've made a post yesterday about this. It is okay to live in abundance and prosperity during these times. Challenging times create, create abundance. And any challenging moment in my life of moments of adversity I look back at my addiction, my back surgeries, when I lost in high school wrestling, you know, my senior year. Every, all of this has all led to saying, okay, what now? And the what now is, is you have to adapt, change, and overcome. Adapt, change, and overcome. And if you find yourself in a situation of adversity, that's going to be your best friend. Do you have an end goal? My... My my end goal is just to just to live in purpose one day at a time, be a be a be an ambassador of recovery, and live in live in a body of live in a sobri body of sobriety, humility, and brilliance all in the same time. I seek no recognition. The market will pay me what I'm worth and what I'm valued, but my the end goal is to continue through life to just to live like this. I don't need a I don't need a poster. I don't need a billboard. I don't need any of that shit. I don't need millions. What I just require is just following what, I, following what I've been set out to do. Do you think your success would be more related to hard work, luck, or being at the right place at the right time? A little bit of all of it. I think, I think intestinal fortitude is, is something that's required in business. And with intestinal fortitude, it's called being relentless. I think hard work is overrated because I think the word hard and then work 
is that you're really living and forcing, grinding your teeth to make things happen. I don't believe that that's, I don't believe that's the case. I believe that you can be an ease flow and it's called relaxed intensity. If you're in relaxed intensity, then you can really live in a body that's in clarity, focus and commitment without being overwhelmed in this do or die, I gotta make it happen situation. There's a little bit of luck involved when it's all right, all when it all comes to play. But also when you really live in a body that's open to the abundance and the, and the capabilities of what is provided in the, in the universe and what is truly out there, when you open yourself and you're not closed, then you open yourself to being in the right place at the right time with the right people. That's all due to your alignment. So luck may just be simply destined to your ability to be aligned with self and aligned with others. And the line with others is being at the right place at the right time with the right people. Um, what habits have you forced yourself to grow out of, if any? I've forced myself out of any habits. I've let go of habits. I don't live in force. I live in, I live in, in ease. So I, the habits that I've let go of is self-sabotage and specifically sabotage within success. All of us, I don't say all of us, that's bold. A large percentage of, of the population live in a, in a sabotage state. They'll continually do the same thing over and over again, wiring and firing the same chemical neurons and addictions to a set of feelings that keep people disappointed. Self-sabotage is number one. People aren't scared, people aren't, aren't scared to fail. They're fearful of the responsibility that sex, success sex. They're scared of the responsibility that success requires. So people will continually sabotage themselves over and over and over again. Take one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back, over and over and over again. I found myself in that, that bobber, the fishing bobber. That's the self-sabotage, the forward, two steps back, forward, two steps back. So really stepping out of self-sabotage, stepping, stepping out of procrastination, stepping into my power and stepping, stepping into production. Last one. I know that when I am the most efficient, the most effective in business and sales and health and relationships, I'm usually in a routine and I'm sticking to it. Um, now I'm in the point of my life where I've worked so hard. I want to do all these things. I want to travel, do this and routine falls to shit, right? Health falls to shit, things like that. But I believe that you're a man of routine. What is your, do you have a routine? Do you have a morning, a night routine, or anything that you would recommend? Absolutely. My, my routine isn't like this 1101, 1102s type situation. I go to bed fairly the same time, do wake up at the same time. In the, in the mornings, I, I like to have my breakfast. Read, I do at least 10 pages of reading every day, and then I get into, straight into production. Uh, I work out, I have a specific workout regimen that I'm committed to four days a week. I'm at the gym four days a week for about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, sometimes if time permits, I'll go a little bit longer because I am a single male, you know, work from home. So sometimes I have the ability to be able to go a little bit longer. And then, then really when it, just really keeping it simple, man, keep it the KISS. I love the KISS acronym, keep it simple, stupid. And it's just keeping it simple and something that something that's duplicatable. And that's what I can say about my life is that everything in my life is duplicatable wherever I'm at. 
And regardless if I'm on the road or traveling or whatever it is, I'm not too far out of routine. Um, but like, I feel sometimes people overcomplicate the morning and night routine and they overwhelm themselves with all this shit that you need to do with the breathing, the yoga, the fucking, the journaling, the gratitude. It's, it's a lot of shit. Just find, a, find one or two that works for you. And for me, it's breathing throughout the day. Some, some nights before I go to bed, I'll do specific breathing meditations. Sometimes not. I've, I've developed a longer breath cycle. I'm in my body more. And it's just a really allowing myself. Now, I do have segmented times where I do have uh, like, hey, during from two to four, this is what's going on. So during my weeks, I do have that going on. And so there are some times that aren't completely filled up where it's giving me some leverage and some ability to change up maybe some of my training uh, length as well as, as uh, when I go based off of my nutrition and how I'm feeling that day. Um, but other than that, I always just say keep it simple. And the best plan, the, the best plan, the best nutrition, the best workout routine, the best wake and best life routine is one that you can commit to every single day. That's the truth. Um, where should people follow you? Life coaching, field supplements. What do you want to plug? What should they know? How can they find out? Yes, find me on more in the know on Instagram. That's that's where I'm at. That's where majority of my content's being produced. If if you go on Instagram, you can see. Uh, the different links in the bio or just write, write in my bio. It's Fueled Supplements. It's just F-U-E-L-E-D Supplements. Check out our Fueled Supplements page. Head to FueledSupplements.com. Be sure to use their your business and buckets code for discount. Buckets, baby. <laughs> and uh, and you'll, be able to, you'll be able to navigate yourself through all of my different platforms on there. Uh, my YouTube link is in my Instagram bio. My my channel is, is uh, more in the know. Same thing. It's been It's across all structures. Um, my, my coaching is called more in tune, but it's under the more in the no umbrella. So it's really all within the same branding other than, other than field. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the hey, time, brother. Yeah. This I, has been great. Yes, heck yeah, um, man. I'm excited to be able to put this out there. I think this was one of the more transparent, like just fuck yeah, uh, podcasts. So excited. And we'll all make sure to post everything and let the viewers know. Sweet. Well, if you're watching this, be sure to subscribe. If you're on my channels to, to, to Business and Buckets, he's been incredibly uh, consistent. I love Shane's content, so be sure to follow Shane's content on here. I'm an advocate of it. I'm an ambassador of all of his UFC content and sports <laughs> things, so that's what I really love most about Shane. I, I like to, to receive his input and value on the sports betting. So well, maybe I'll bet this weekend. Maybe you can help we me. we got to do some bets. We'll, right. we'll be in there this in a, person together. This is so. a fucking shitty car to bet on, though. Nah, because you could do multiple things because okay. there's so many okay. fights. All right. right, all right. Well, appreciate you guys for having me, and uh, thank you, Shane. Yeah, appreciate yeah. it, brother. Thank you. Sweet. Yeah, man. That was fun. Fuck yeah, bro.